You can kick your fancy ales, you can take them by the flagon, but the only food for the raven too come from the green dragon. Welcome to episode 16 of the Green Dragon Podcast. Now, this episode's going to be a little bit different from the ones in the past. Jeremy here, and with me is Danny. Hello. And we want to just go through some of the things you're going to experience on this episode. So we're going to start off with, with my month. So Jeremy only in this one. Danny wasn't around for this recording. My month in Middle Earth, explaining what I've been doing in the hobby and and my adventures in Middle Earth. Then after the month in Middle Earth, I'm going to have this month's competition, which will have a due date of the 20th of September. So have a listen for that and enter our competition. After that, me and Jeremy will be talking about the Masters, the Australian Masters Tournament, which was run earlier in July. Yeah, July, I think it was 4th and 5th, and what a great event that was. So we've got a substantial talk about that. So once again, this is Tournament Report's been an interesting one because the feedback's been, for some people, we love it, and other people, we hate it. I'll put timestamps in the Facebook page post so you can fast forward through parts if you don't like it, but substantially long Masters Report there. Then I'm going to revise the Shadow in the Past scenario where I look through some of my old books and, and this get some get nostalgic about them. So this was for the Necromancer, the source book from, I think it was about 2005. I'll check that up when I go through that. For the for the Necromancer, I remember counting the will points on the evil side in the final scenario and just going, how are we going to keep track of this with dice? Yeah, it's a great scenario. It's so much fun. And you'll hear a bit about that. Then after that, I've got another solo Jeremy segment, which is my new concerning segment. So concerning something, this time I'm talking about concerning balance. So I have a bit of a discussion about what is balance and balancing games and discuss my thoughts on that. And, and as we go forward, we'll get more people on and have different topics. So if you've got some suggestions for that topic, that would be great. Concerning something in the game. After that, Jeremy and I talk about the conversions in the in our Masters Armies. So Jeremy took some Osgiliath veterans and Faramir, and I took some Yurikai scouts, lots of conversions with the captains there. And then after that, we'll answer some questions that have been posted on the Facebook page. And finally, sum up with some very quick thoughts. So the quick thoughts segment is always designed to be a bit of a a filler at the end. So we get a minute to talk about something and and our listeners have provided the questions there. So that's an episode. It's going to be a long episode. So stop the recording now. Get set up. Get your paint water. Get your paint palette if you need that. Get your headphones ready. Get comfortable and enjoy. And I really hope you get some painting done. Get some enjoyment out of this episode and give us some feedback about it. Let us let us know if this is what you want for the big episode of the month. We're still going to be doing the small episodes and the segment-specific episodes, but I wanted to have a big podcast one with a bit of variety to it. So we'll get straight on to my month in Middle Earth. First segment, A Month in Middle-Earth. This is where I'm going to talk a little bit about what I've been doing in the last month in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit game. I've had people ask questions about that, and people seem interested in what we're doing. So it's a bit of a recap. We don't do this a huge amount, and if I ever have guests on, we'll ask them as well. But I've had a busy month in Middle-Earth. We've had our Masters tournament, and my main aim at the Masters is to provide some amazing tables. So I'll talk about the terrain I've been working on first. 
I made with the secret weapon miniature tiles, uh, tablescapes tiles, and some foreground buildings, both companies who make fantastic terrain supplies. I made a Rohan board. So this one used one foot tiles square. I put some Rohan buildings and foundations on them, which looked really good. I was very happy with the turnout. Lots of different colors of grass on there, so that turned out well as well. And I also made sub with Games Workshop trees. Now, the Games Workshop trees, I have a few of them, but I, I wasn't really a huge fan of them. They are always done in the the twisted no-leaf style, I found. But I got really inspired when I saw in the Desolation of Smaug book some Merkle trees where they basically put heaps of the leaves on them. They looked really good. So I copied that straight out, obtained heaps and heaps of leaves, and put them onto the trees. It took me ages to make the trees and, and way longer than I expected, but they turned out fantastic. Normally I go for lots of variation in my trees, but these ones I painted all the same, and I was very happy with the results. They looked quite good, and... They fit into the board really well. I also made an effort to make sure that the growth under the trees looked natural. So lots of leaf litter, the the actual ground raised up, some roots sticking out. And this can mark off the difficult terrain. So the board looked fantastic. And I was really, really happy with that. So that became our feature board for the, the tournament. And I can't wait to make another feature board for next year. Then I also made some walls. So I used the Here Starts molds with their, their stone molds. So basically walls made out of stones. Recently, well, not too recently, but but at some point they made ones where the stones have been damaged, so that some stones are missing. Normally, to damage a, a bit of his starts uh, block, you just grab a pliers and take chunks out. Doesn't work for the rock ones because rocks don't work that way. But it looked really good, so I made some some damaged walls, and they're functional. They ended up on a bit of a a board that wasn't the best board, to be honest. But they're going to be great down the track to work with. And uh, it was good to have Danny to help paint out those as well. Then I've been working on a new board. I just started one out. I got really inspired to make the Gates of Erebor. And I want to use this maybe as Gates of Moria as well. Generic gates from a mountain for dwarves. And I also want to make it so it's flexible enough to use for my 10 mil Battle of Five Armies game that Games Workshop released years and years ago now using variations on the Warmaster rules. So I've got... I got a second-hand realm of battle board, and I've used two of the the hill parts as the main ones. I built them up using the the old Citadel Hill as well. I've made a back removable board that you can use as the dwarven gate, so a really nice backdrop. And then I've made it carved a river in it, leading up to it. It's my own take on the gates of Erebor. It's not going to look exactly like the one out of the movie, but I'm okay with that because this is my building of Middle Earth, and that's going to look fantastic as well. It will be used for Masters next year, but I'm going to use it in the meantime to do scenarios. I've really got my eye on the one out of the old Return of the King book, which is uh, Dane's Last Stand, where the men of, I think they say Ravanion, but it's, uh, no, it'd be Men of Dale. So I've used the old, I've made up enough of the Men of Dale, Warriors of Dale, and converted up some banners for it. I've got the dwarves that we can use for it, and then having having Dane, old Dane, of course, stand up against some orcs and Easterlings and wag riders. It should be a good fun scenario. I'm looking forward to putting that together. And for models, I've, I made a few models as well. Uh, it's silly enough to, to make a new list for the Masters Tournament, which is not the best time to do that. But I ended up taking an Oskilia Veteran list. So I made up a bunch of Oskilia Veterans, converted them, because there's only a few poses for the Oskilia Veterans, and I wanted more. I based a lot of them on Rangers. So I've got cloaks and things on them. So Faramir, I also converted a Faramir with, uh, with the Ranger form and Lance and Bow on horse, which looked fantastic. I really enjoyed converting that model up. And some Oskilia veterans. I also had some Boromir, the Knight of the White Tower, in this list. And 
yeah, I'll talk about the results a little bit later in, in the games, but that wasn't too bad. I've also been doing up my Easterlings as well, neatening them up. My Easterlings have been painted in various years, and, and the latest ones I'm really happy with the results of, but some of the older ones needed a bit of a touch-up. So I've been going over those and touching them up and bringing them up to my new standard. Kylie's really, really, really keen to play through a shadow in the east, the campaigns and, and scenarios out of that. So I'll, I'll get the Easterlings done eventually. I also painted four ranges of Gondor to add to my Oskilia Thetran army. I'm hoping to play some of the old ranger scenarios from the Return of the King White Dwarf magazine. So I wanted some more rangers. So I was very happy with those. They came out very well. Looked better than my old ones, actually. I've done a lot this month in modeling, but I'm not sure I will for the next month because... I've just recently injured my thumb, and I'm fingers crossed it's all okay. We'll see how that goes, but it might mean that painting and modeling is, is off the radar. It might mean more podcasts for you guys, which could be a good thing, but I'm a little bit down on that, to be honest, because painting and modeling is one of my favorite things to do, and also all the other things we do with my hand, my volleyball and, and playing the piano and all this other stuff, it's, it's basically going to be put on hold for a while, so we'll see how that goes. And games, lots and lots and lots of games. So I'll talk about points match games I've been playing. Once again, I'm not the biggest fan of points match, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but the master scenarios are really fantastic. Kylie does a great job making interesting scenarios. It gives you lots to think about. So I really did enjoy playing those points match games. Uh, the people I played, I'll give them all a little bit of a shout-out. I played Andreas's Mordor Force with my Oskilia veterans in the first game. Got a, a very big win there. There was a, basically a breakthrough scenario where you had to get models off the board, and he had a very small force, which was very powerful, but didn't work particularly well split up. So I got a big victory there. Played against Josh with Dol Amroth on the Rohan board. So I was really happy to play on the Rohan board. We played one where you had to hold scenario, uh, objectives for a certain amount of time. You got points as the game went on, and then you got points at the end of the game. I held the objectives through a tough fought game for pretty much the whole whole game, but then in the last turn, through some fortunate courage tests for Josh and some unfortunate ones for me, he ended up with all three objectives, which was a massive point swing in terms of it. So I lost all the points I'd gained throughout the scenario, and Josh got a whole bunch more. So I think the mass was a little bit off on that one because I, I was really dominating through most of the game in terms of objective grabbing. In terms of models, no, we we're about even, and Josh played it really well. But yeah, I lost that one, a close one, and... Losing close games is never a problem. Josh had a wonderful Dol Amroth army with a, a Swan as Gwar here. And to be honest, I was a bit worried about this at the start. I thought, oh, it doesn't really suit Middle Earth. And then then once I saw it and thought it through, I thought, yeah, look, it, it kind of does. Tolkien has a lot of really fantastic models and, and things like Bayorn, who's a giant bear. Why can't we have a giant swan? I'm still not 100% convinced, but it looks fantastic. It really did suit the Dol Amroth army. So, so good on Josh for converting that up. Great army. Then I played Jim's Mortar Army in a variation of the the uh, domination scenario. This one's probably the this least variation because the domination scenario is fantastic. This was one where I was winning on kills quite well. He had a, basically an orc horde with a mortar troll and some uh, I think it's the black dark marshal, one of the named ringwraiths, and I managed to get rid of that and and really had the run of him in terms of kills. But he played very smart in, and basically put a horde of orcs on every objective possible. So I had had a reasonably fragile army, so I had to go kill him and then grab the objectives. And I had some... Like, you get a very small window once you break the force to go and take the objectives and make sure the others run away, and it's a little bit of a gamble. And the gamble didn't pay off on me. Boromir failed a key heroic combat to get onto one of the objectives, and Jim had held, I think it was basically three at the end to my two, or something like that. I can't remember the exact details, but he played it really well. And 
got a minor win again on a scenario where he was really outmatched throughout the game. So that was fantastic for Jim because that happens all the time in the games where you, if you're up against, you're up against it, but you don't give up and you play the objectives. And he did that fantastically. So well done, Jim. It was good to for you to get some revenge on me after the um, Silmarilla really tournament. So so I was happy for Jim there, uh, which means on the first day I had one win and two losses. So it wasn't going too well, but that's all right. You can always make it up on the second day. So then on the second day, I played a fantastic army from Dion, which was the five, five ring wraiths on Felbeast. And this was a really tough one. It was a secret scenario where we didn't know each other's objectives. And that's a fantastic scenario. So much fun to have the secret objectives. I ended up with all objectives based on movement. So I had to hold out for the 10 turns. And I was playing it really well, I thought, and, and doing quite a good job and, and holding off and going for it. But we ran out of time, unfortunately. And this is, oh, I hate running out of time. And it wasn't through fault of our own. Dion's a good player, but a relative new player. So we, we had some rules discussions throughout. None of them were, were any like heated. It was just talking about how things work and how things we played and, and that that would get quicker with time. But we didn't quite finish it. So we got seven turns out of the 10. And when we flipped over the scenarios, I got the minor win there. But uh, it was a close scenario and, and I would have liked to play it out because it was no means a guaranteed win to me either. I could have, my force could have run away and broken and, and ring wraiths are much better at staying around than that. But his ring race were all on very low will, the ones that were remaining, and and we had a good job. He managed to get rid of a lot of my characters. Uh, I think Boromir held on to the end, or maybe he killed Boromir right at the end. Yes, he killed Boromir right at the end. Faramir got assassinated really early, but he was a, a sacrifice I had to make. If you're going against ring race, you're always going to lose a character. And I'm, I managed to swap Faramir for a ring race, so I was very happy with that. So I drew the ring race forward and, and ambushed him next turn and took out one of the ring race. So Faramir for, for a 50s army... You take that trade, I guess, and it's depressing, but you take that trade. Then I played Thomas Dado, who won last year's Masters. He had a, an Elf Alliance force with some some of the fast-moving Gildor's Elves in the light armor. He had a Radagast on Eagle. We played a scenario, and this was a little bit unfortunate, one of those ones where you come on, you roll to see where you place them, and I won priority. So we both looked at each other and, and we're a little bit sad because when you win priority in a scenario where you place your entire force and the other force can be placed them basically around you, you're in a lot of trouble. And that's what happened. I did a, did a decent job trying to break through. I managed to get Radagast. Radagast came at Boromir. I, I used the Boromir for bait. Radagast didn't manage to get him. Did some good moves to try and get there, but failed his barge attack. Didn't get all the way and took down Radagast. But Thomas had by that time got on the whole objective and I was trying to fight through and and didn't work. Unfortunately, Faramir got shot out, I believe, really early. Like some a lucky shot, two elves, I think, damaged him or, or something like that. And it was that was a bit depressing because that was basically the hero was going to hold my lines and help my assault. So I didn't have any might there, and and it was a it was a disappointing one because I would like to give Thomas more of a battle. So he absolutely thrashed me in that one, and I really didn't didn't challenge him that much, which is unfortunate for for the masters, I guess. So then. I played Nick with his Rohan Force, and, and some of my Rohan Force, actually, because he borrowed some of my models, in a fantastic scenario, the Contest of Champions. This was supposed to be my real strong scenario, because I had Boromir the White Tower, but Nick played it really well. He won some key roll-offs early on, managed to move his force away from me, his Gandalf, got some kills with Gandalf with some Sorceress Blast, and then kept running. I thought he, I thought he had me, really. He was playing so fantastically well, but then I basically used up all Boromir's might while he was on foot, because, of course, he got knocked off his horse. To, to get into combat, call a heroic combat and get another move and get into to Nick's lines. And Nick took a gamble, threw his whole force in, and I was able to manage to get a couple more kills of Boromir. Um, I was broken at this point. Nick was one model off, broken at the end of the game. 
but Gandalf failed to get his kills at the end, and I think Nick probably should have been a little bit more aggressive with Gandalf. There was a really weak flank of rangers I had with maybe Madril and Damrod, which Gandalf and, and Erkenbrand and Aemer could have easily taken out, and I think Nick played the perfect Rohan battle for anything but Contest of Champions. He just didn't get the kills. I thought he could have easily got to five kills with Gandalf, and in the end, I think he got two to my four, so I got lots of points for that and managed to, to get the minor win as well. So I ended up with three wins, three losses, which is a good result at Masters, and I think I got ninth place as well, which is, once again, a good result. I'm happy with that. It's a bit lower than I've been finishing lately, but I've been having a, a major run with tournaments of late, so it's kind of nice to have that ending, and I can go back to some scenario play. So it was fun games. Thank you to all my opponents. You guys were all great. Not one one complaint about that. Then I played one practice game for Masters, not using my Masters army, of course. I played with Nick. Um, he used his Rohan again, and I used the Dunland Horde, which probably actually would have been better than my, my actual army. I would love to use this. It had Saruman and Grima and some, some Urukai Scouts and some Dunland Warriors and some uh, Wildman of Dunland. It looked fantastic. We played on the Rohan board, so nice and themed. We played, I think it was Domination we played, actually, just the normal Domination and we had a great time, and I managed to, to win that quite well with some some very bold moves at the start, taking on Urkenbrand early on with Thryden and, and Sauriman, um, and then using those for my maneuver and, and moving around with my horde, avoiding. It was a really good fun game, and, and I enjoyed that one. So once again, I don't mind points matches if you theme your forces around it. So we were on a themed board. Nick had his Rohan force, so we put together a Dunlin force for me, and I really enjoyed that. That was fantastic. But then on to the highlights. I've played quite a few scenarios as well, and I'll probably miss some, but just some of the highlights. We played, I played again with Nick, the Bayon scenario from the Desolation Smell caught alone in the woods. This is Bayon on his own against Azog and Nazog, and this is a real challenge for Bayon. I might have actually talked about it in the Bayon episode. It's a scenario where I started off pretty well, but I used up too much resources to go take out Nazog and some hunters, and then Nick finally, finally managed to corner me in the board, and this is bad. You don't want to get cornered as a bear. You want to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. So he managed to corner me and then whittle me down, and Azog had might and Bayorn didn't, and that was pretty much the end of it. I needed a long shot to win it. I, I gave it my best. I broke the orcs, but Azog managed to finally get me, and, and it was a good fun scenario, and good on Nick for, for beating me in that one. And we played the Barrels Out of Bond Part 1 scenario, which is the Green Dragon, one of their favorite scenarios. This one I've got a custom board for. If you're ever going to make a custom board for a scenario, do it for this one. Get the models for this one. It's fantastic. We actually learned a few things that we've been missing of late. One, that the dwarves can't steer the barrels. The hunter orcs are on them. We've got a little bit of a house rule on them, like nothing on a barrel or in a barrel takes a courage test for break because it's really anticlimactic to have the dwarves run away because where are you going to run from a barrel? But it was fantastic. My warg riders did a fantastic job taking down the elf support. I've never seen hunter orc warg riders do so well. They ripped apart the elf flanks. Luckily for Nick, about... Just over half a dozen elves, including Tara and Legolas, managed to jump on the barrels. And then Nick was doing really well with the barrels. Uh, it was My hunter orcs were jumping on and getting defeated. His barrels were steering reasonably well, going down. He put them all down one side of the river, which was a good idea, I guess. Had the barrels support each other and had Bilbo and Tara and Legolas jumping on barrel to barrel. But a couple of the barrels got bogged. And I managed to get both the dwarves whose barrels got bogged. So that was Dory and Balin, I think. They, they crashed into the island and couldn't steer around it. So that's a real risk for the for the good player. Don't get them crashed. So I took out those ones. Legolas managed to kill... We used Bolg. We didn't use Azog. We used the Bolg on Warg, and he has to dismount to jump on a barrel, but that was fun. He got rid of that. I think Tariel managed to take down Fimble, or they managed to stare at each other at the end or something. Fimble, Fimble finally got killed, but he did a good job there. Nazag did a decent job, but got taken out as well. So my heroes all went. 
And at the end, the dwarves looked like they had it free. They lost two dwarves, but it looked like they were going to do it comfortably. Then Bilbo fighting the last hunter orc lost and ended up, I think it was, he got knocked off a barrel. Yes, his barrel, the barrel under him got, got sunk, I believe, or he failed a jump test or something. He managed to get in the water and then he drowned. Didn't have any might. Rolled a one. No Dory nearby because I think Dory had died earlier. Bilbo drowned, which forced the draw. So Nick easily got enough dwarves off, or bar two, I believe. Or maybe it was three. I can't remember exactly which ones died. But Bilbo managed to drown. So unfortunately, it was a draw for Nick. But it was a fantastic scenario. We had a ball doing that. And I think he really enjoyed it. So that was a great scenario. And I love the excuse to bring that scenario out because it's so much fun. Every time we played it, we've enjoyed it. We haven't got sick of it. It's one of the few scenarios that I think you could play for a long, long time. You just treat it like a board game. Bring it out, play it with friends, and just have a blast with it. You know what's going to happen, but the, the, the journey is well worth the effort. So if you're going to make a scenario, have a look at that one from the Desolation of Smaug book. If you can't get the Desolation of Smaug book, well, look, maybe send us a message or something. We'll find some way to get that. I think they might have printed that scenario in a white dwarf at some point. So there might be ways to still get it, but it's well worth it. A great scenario and well done to the author of that. I think it might have been Adam Troke who wrote that one scenario, but it was just such a good scenario. Really well done. I also played another scenario of Nick Scouring of the Westfold from the Two Towers Journey book. This is a fantastic scenario. I had a lot of fun with it. I played as the Rohan. Nick played as the Dunland and Urukai Scout Alliance. We're trying to burn down some buildings. At the start, the Rohan managed to get a couple kills early. Killed a, an Urukai Scout and a man of Dunland. But then the Dunland turned it around really quickly. Took out a bunch of Rohan. And I had to do a lot of shielding and just held on until my relief force came. The relief force was a captain of Rohan on horse, some outriders, and a banner bearer. And when they came on, they really performed well. They turned the game, had a massive turn, and killed about six evil models in a single turn, and basically turned the game around for me. Nick managed to burn down one of the buildings, but I saved two of them, put the fire out, and Rohan was saved. Well, this village anyway. Until next time. And the final scenario I've played throughout this month has been Strange Circumstances from the Shadow in the East. This is one where you have a Khan and very small ranger of Gondor with Kyrian Alliance against orcs with a catapult. This scenario looks fantastic. We set it up on my tiles. I painted up another bunch of tiles to make sure my Rohan board could be used as this, so I had eight replacement tiles, which so I guess I could make an 8x4 board if I wanted to now, which would be great. And we played through it. The scenario looked fantastic. Uh, Kylie and I, my Khan forces look wonderful. She's got a purple-themed one, a... Uh, the Purple Lotus, I believe she calls it. And I've got my Green Dragon themed one. We'll put up some photos of this. And we had David over as well, and, and we're using my Orc Force. Firstly, David and, and Kylie played, and I watched a bit. And the scenario looked really fun. Unfortunately, it's got a rule where the Orcs are a little bit hard to command, where they've got to basically have to roll a three or more to, to move the groups of them. The scenario from a from a, someone watching it flowed really well and it looked great and it's told a story. But from a player's point of view, the orc player can be a little bit frustrated because they often don't move their forces. And when you don't get to move, it doesn't really highlight a game. So this is a scenario, and I had the same experience when I played it, where I would love to play it again and fix up some of those because there was just a little bit of control taken out of the hands of the orcs. The scenario itself was probably balance and we'll talk about balance at some point in this scenario in this podcast but it just from a player's point of view you just didn't get the choices you wanted to and it was a little bit frustrating there so strange circumstances from shadow in the east i want to play through it a bit more and, and probably do a scenario spotlight on it sometime as well because it's a great looking scenario great idea but it just needs a little tweak or two so that was my month in middle earth and i've had had quite a journey it's been fun 
And now it's time for me to announce our competition. I'm going to go for two months deadline for this competition. So two months from the day I record this, uh, when I actually do the intro and I'll put in the exact date. I don't have it right now because I I'm, I'm, don't know how far I am out from releasing the episode. But the competitions will last for two months, which will hopefully be an episode in between to remind you, and then an episode to to basically get the results and, and sort them out. Now, this competition, I'm going to be doing a designer scenario competition. So I need listeners to design a scenario for me. I love playing scenarios. I will play every scenario that gets given to me. I will try them all out. Within reason, if you give me one that's like a thousand Rohan, I probably can't do that. So I'll put a little bit of general guidelines. They're not actually going to be limitations as such, but they'll be basically what I'm looking for and what I what I like in a scenario because I'll be the one choosing the winner. The prize for this time will be a hand sculpted by me. Well, not entirely hand sculpted. I'll be converting an existing AMIA model for you and I'm going to turn it into the Aemir Knight of the Palinor on foot. I've done this conversion once before for my friend Charles, and he was very happy with it. And I'm actually going to do a run where I do a couple more of them. So I'll make at least one for me and one for the listener who wins this competition. So I'll send that out to anywhere in the world that Australia Post sends to. And yeah, that will be your prize and my thanks for making a scenario. So the scenario, of course, must then include Aemir. So that's that's the rule. Only rule there, must include Aemir. I don't care if it's a Palinor field form or a form on foot or your own special one where he doesn't have any armor at all. You've invented your own profile, whatever. I'm not fussed about that, but it must include Aemir. I like scenarios that are over in a reasonable amount of time that have a lot of action throughout, that have a lot of choices. So if it's one where the outcome is known right from the start, I'm probably not as interested. If it's one where basically we just grind out things and the the forces aren't forced to move, I'm probably not going to be as interested. If it's one where I have to move somewhere or I have to do something interesting, I'll probably be more likely to be interested in that. Now, if you go to my Facebook page, you could well, our Facebook Green Dragon page, you can see the Rohan terrain I've been working on with my Rohan buildings and forests and things. That one, feel free to put in my six Rohan buildings into the terrain. That would be fine. Put in the river if you want. You can make a different board. I can pretty much put together any terrain board you want, except for like inside Edoras or anything like that. So don't get too complicated. It could be a Helm's Deep scenario. I do have my Helm's Deep board that I've used for the the siege. But keep in mind that I am a huge fan of the, the Helm's Deep siege already. And you may not be able to, to outdo that. So it might be something, to be honest, I think something that might be a bit smaller scale that really focuses on AMIR doing something special, I think will be the one for me. Now, it could be at the Palinor Fields. It could be before. It could be him, I guess, the the charge against the Orcs next to Fangorn. Give me whatever you like. I'm, I'm interested to see what you come up with. Board size doesn't worry me too much Anyway, I will put a general guideline. If it's bigger than, say, 8 foot by 6 foot, it's probably going to be a little bit too big for me to find spots for, but I'll go any any size in between, any size, any dimensions. That's totally up to you. Be smart about that. Choose the dimensions that works. If you want a long, skinny board, take it. If you want to go 6 foot by 1 foot or 2 foot, go for it. If you want to go for a square board, a rectangle board, that's fine. Round boards can be a little bit tricky. You could try that if you wanted to. Keep the terrain interesting. Keep the forces interesting. Now, you can take any force you want against it, of course. You're going to be doing better if you choose some themed forces. And if you choose something from a book, that's going to be fantastic. If you choose something with a bit of background, that's going to be fantastic as well. Now, don't worry too much if you are not great 
at the formatting. If you can do it in a professional format, it probably will help a little bit. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make that the main criterion. I really, really, really want the game to be the focus. I've got people who who really love doing up articles and things, so I'm sure we can make it look professional afterwards. And we'll we will publish the well any of the scenarios that I actually like. I'll publish and the ones that that I don't like, I might actually get in contact with you and just say, look, this one is a great idea, but it didn't work in this way. So um, um, I'll give some feedback there. Basically, if you're really concerned about owning this scenario, well, it's probably not good to enter into a competition because like like all competitions, if you enter it to us, we do reserve the right to, to put it on our Facebook page, to put it on our Green Dragon pages, to spread it around to people. And it's probably not a good idea to claim ownership anyway because we probably don't have the rights. Anyway, so... Basically, to summarize, I want a scenario about AMIR. Any size you want, any participants you want, whatever terrain you want, make it about a story. This should be fun. I'm excited about this. Get your entries in by the date that I'll put in now, 20th of September 2015. And away we go. I look forward to hearing the entries. And keep in mind that as this is our first competition, if you do enter, there's a very good chance you win it because we probably won't get a huge amount of entries. So it'll be great to get to get 12 entries or so, but I I doubt that. I'll probably I'll be be very happy to get half a dozen. So do put in the effort to try it. Throw down AMIR, half a dozen riders of Rohan and some Urukai and see what you can come up with. I might really like the small scenarios. I really my one of my favorite scenarios is the farmer maggot scenario. So don't be afraid to do it on a small scale. It could be really interesting. Don't be afraid to use reinforcements. Don't be afraid to use any of the rules in the rule book. Don't be afraid to make up your own rules. I'd like to see what you come up with. I'm looking forward to this and I'll start converting the models, getting ready to hand it out to you. Thanks. back now and we've got what some people have been waiting for for a while the the master's report i've got danny on here and it'll become very obvious very soon why we've got danny on so it's just the two of us at the moment unfortunately kylie who was a tournament organizer couldn't make it to this recording session which is a real shame but firstly danny what is the master's tournament what's the history behind it what's going on you know a little bit about it because we've all been a little bit on the organization well masters is a two-day event in july is it not it's in the second year now, so it first run last year when um, Kylie and Jeremy and a few other people got together and decided that they wanted to hold, you know, the, a big, a really well organised tournament that they'd invite other people from different states to, and that we can we really make a nice, just big, big, good event, good solid event. Uh, Kylie's got to take credit for that. She really wanted to make sure it was was the Masters event. And look, I jumped on board with with help with like the venue. So I've got it at the school I work at, and. I wanted to. I jumped in and said I wanted to look the best. She wanted it to be the most competitive tournament, and I, to be honest, I didn't like the name Masters to start out with because I thought it's. I know that they have Masters in other game system, but it sort of pushed the competitive side quite a lot. And I'm one that I don't mind it, but I don't think that should be the focus. But I think the events turned out to be a happy medium where I think all all parts of the hobby is celebrated really, and the games look fantastic. There's fantastic terrain, fantastic painted armies. 
and people just having fun the whole time. So the big complaint this year, let's get this out of the way straight away, and, and it's it's the second year, and this is really disgraceful as tournament organisers, and I think I think we need to make a public apology. Melbourne weather wanted to show off how cold it was again. It was freezing. So cold. And, of course, I got sick afterwards. So what did you think about that, Danny? Well, I thought it was quite warm on the Sunday morning at 8 a.m. I, you know, I was expecting icicles, and I didn't get that i was just in my jack in my vest and i was quite warm okay but for so melbourne weather it's good i think melbourne weather gets a bad rap at times but this was this was we definitely deserved on this weekend it was so annoyingly cold and and the wind chill factor was just nasty mm-hmm. so apologies for all our travels from interstate and there was a lot of them we had i think at least eight people from it and i'm gonna try and name them and if i've forgotten someone i am so sorry give me a shout out and i'll, I'll mention you in the next one and, and apologize, but we had from Queensland two players, which is really far north, so they would have been freezing. Uh, Thomas Bott first time, and Daniel Jones the second time he came, so thanks for coming, guys. It's a fantastic effort. Yeah, I really enjoyed playing against Daniel. I've played him two Masters in a row now, and I'm looking forward to playing him next year. I wanted to play Daniel. We actually got drawn up in the last round, and we both got really excited because it's like I haven't played him before and we've talked a bit before and, and last year I gave Daniel some lifts to, to and from his hotel. So we've got to know each other a little bit, not a huge amount, but I really wanted to play against him, but I missed out. So I think next event we're going to grudge each other and, and get that game in because we disappointed I missed out. He looks like a fantastic player. And then from New South Wales, we had quite a few. We had Andreas, we had Patrick, we had Samuel, we had Michael, we had Liam, we had Andrew. I think that's the cohort. We didn't have Sean this year and I'm, I'm not sure it was six or seven. I, I think we'll leave it at that lot, but these are fantastic players. These New South, Wales play, New South Wales players know how to play. They came up the whole lead up to the tournament. Kylie was talking about how the New South Wales players were the players to beat. And, and look, I believe her because they really put some serious effort into learning their armies. They knew what they were doing. Uh, they're all solid players. They can all play, well, maybe with the exception of Liam. But other than that, they're all fantastic players and... and they did pretty well. I think the New South Wales won the best state, didn't they? Yes, I think they were two points above Queensland. Just pipped Queensland. So good on you, New South Wales, for beating Queensland. Victoria was way down on that. And I think being the home state, having the more people is going to make it tough. But we really need to lift our game. We can't have the interstaters coming in and taking away our, our state trophy. This is our pride. But at least one person in this room did their best for Victoria. However, next year we won't invite Matt, say Matt Todd or David. Yeah, I think getting rid of some of those uh, a bit disappointing players. I think anyone who finished lower than ninth, I think we should probably kick out. Uh, I don't know why that number, but that seems about right to me. Hmm. I think eighth is better. That means anyone up below Smaug gets kicked out. Oh, damn. Okay, and we'll go quickly. We'll go through some results, and then we'll talk about a little bit about the tournament, and then we're going we're gonna to hear from Danny, essentially. So the main highlights, and I'm not going to go through all the results. They're up on our Facebook page. If you want to read them, they've been out for over a month now, so or almost a month. I'm not entirely sure. The most important prize, the one that everyone wants, the one that everyone goes for, the top prize in Australia. The Lawmaster? Yeah. No. I was going <laughs> to... Lawmaster. I got Lawmaster. Yes. Uh, the, I'm talking about Best Army. Mason, well done. What a fantastic Arnor army. I was a bit skeptical. He's posted up pictures throughout sort of this half of the year about it, and they've been all different bases, and and he really got his force coherently together by making a, making use of the display board. He made a an old ruin, and I think it was a, a 
pre-manufactured or ruined, but he did it up himself, made it look even more ruined, had some grass area, and then had some melted snow, and then some snow in some areas, so he could put his models on, and they looked the part. So his display base was fantastic. His non-metallic metal was just great. He had lots of damaged, rusty metal, which, which is quite different from the way I do non-metallic metal, from the way Danny does non-metallic metal. It's really his own style. So fantastic work, Mason. Very impressive. Won, won the best army by a landslide and well-deserved. I cannot wait to see what you put together next year. Now for some other prizes. Of course, you mentioned Lawmaster was me. That's great. We had, I think, the, the friendliest player or the, the most nicest person when they get defeated was Nick Gentili. And I'm not going to go through all the placings, but Danny, congratulations. The Master for 2015, apparently best player in Australia. Who knew? Well, I certainly didn't know that, so... Yeah, congratulations. I'm going to be the first to say this, and I mean this with the utmost disrespect. No one expected you to win it, Danny. Yes, everyone's telling me, I, I you know, make sure you beat, say, in the last round, make sure you beat Pat, otherwise he'll win. Or make sure you beat, say, um, Thomas Datto, who, who was the victor last year. And they all placed quite well, but no one was expecting me to win. They just wanted me to beat to the other person. everyone else. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the thing. We, we wanted you to play the spoiler role, and you did that so well that you end up winning the whole tournament. So we're going to go through your report in a moment. We'll hold that off just a little bit. i just talk about basically the master setup and give people who haven't been there an idea of it. If you haven't already been, please, once again, I, I always say this, check the Facebook page. I'm pretty sure you can check the Green Dragon page without being a member of Facebook. I don't think it's blocked off. So you go on there. Have a look at one of the previous posts where we've got heaps and heaps of photos about the Masters tournament. It's well worth seeing. We are seriously proud of the terrain we put in there. So, Danny, you provided two and a half tables, is that right? Two tables and a table base? I was very surprised that that table base got used, but yes. Yeah, we, we, we'll yeah. do that up next year. We just we had more than last year, so we want to do a few more tables, and we're actually going on to that. I've contacted some of my favorite terrain suppliers, and they're going to help me out a little bit. But... Mm-hmm. You had the Osgiliath board. Now, we made slight changes to this Osgiliath board. It's been around a long time, and I just want to talk about the changes a little bit. We actually added one of my underground boards to it, so I put the gray underneath it, and I think that makes a huge difference. I don't know if you saw it, Danny, but it, it looks so much better in photos. The black, I think, makes it look really dull, and and, yes. and the gray, it just brings it all together. So that's it's no extra work. I've just got a gray board, but I think that helped a lot. And also we put, I think, four trees in there, four red trees around the bridge, which gave it just that little bit of color, which was all it needed to set it off. But the board itself is fantastic. Here starts towers and ruins and some, some other manufacturers' ruins. It just looks really good. It does suit Osgiliath, and it's, it's amazing to fight over. Big river down the middle. It's a great board. Although it does need a complete rebuild. My brother was just telling me the other day because we built it quite a few years ago and back then we were such cheap skates that we didn't use enough glue and we used two dollar shop glue so we're missing entire walls now just and we've got to rebuild it but it will be better next year hopefully yeah i think you've got to invest in some proper glue for it getting some good quality pva is not that expensive and putting enough on i think I've, i've actually made fun of david quite a bit about this you can't have a millimeter square drop of glue holding a brick that's that's four centimeters long and two centimeters wide or whatever like that. It just doesn't work. You've got to put some serious glue there it's, and it will hold it together forever. So yeah, put put some work into it, but it's a fantastic board. We really like that one. And the other one was, of course, your Tower of Amon Barad, which is an octagonal tower. Once again, here starts with some fantastic fences that really break up the terrain and some trees. And I really like this board. It just looks the part, really highlights this tower. Yes, um, 
that tower is one my dad assembled just when we had the Here Starts mods a while ago that we borrowed from our local gaming club. So that's basically done using the instructions provided with that mold. Just look at them on the website. The other features on that board are some trees made from just the model railway. You buy them, they're flat packed. You assemble them, you stick some foliage on them. And some fences which were provided, we bought from a local war games, you know, historical war games company. Yeah, so and I think you might have picked it up on a sale night or something like that. I just saw them and it just works so well. It's a fantastic board and I've played on it a few times. I really enjoy playing on it. It gives you lots of tactical challenges and, and that tower just makes the board. It's it's really imposing and, and, and a great board to play on. I'll just mention the other boards as well because there's quite a few of them. We had one. I'm going to mention this first because it was probably the worst one. It was basically the leftovers board. So it had Teddy and David's spare board as a base. It had my my half Amon Hen watchtower piece from forge world it had some bricks it had a building had some fantastic elements but they didn't really coherently go together it was a bit of a a throw together so we've got at least one board we need to make for next year if even if we don't increase the number of people but then on to the really good boards kylie supplied a rohan board uh, which she's had for a while she wants to to redo a little bit and also a fantastic new card board or eastling board with some buildings that she's been working on and and some trees it's a big like pine trees and some rocky outcrops and had a river in there and it just and a, a Tory gate looked looked fantastic so that was one of the new boards and that was a bit of a surprise because I must admit I didn't expect her to get it done because she always promises some fantastic boards and often doesn't deliver so that was fantastic to have that one so really good we had Tim Wright who brought the Smaug model had a fantastic underground like um, Moria board so huge pillars this one got lots of comments people love playing on this one and I think the key for it is because it's got such huge pillars you can spot it from the other side of the room and it just it works as a board a lot of the terrain straight out of the Fellowship of the Ring scenario book so if you've got that journey book go make some of it and, and you can get a board that looks like Tim's mm-hmm. you've got to be a bit careful when playing on it because it is it's got massive pillars that you can knock over. But aside from that, it's, it does, it's a very distinctive board and it looks quite nice. The only thing I'd like Tim to do is maybe get some dowel that can join the pillars to the, the board. So maybe drill into the board where he wants the pillars and, and put some dowel in to make it a bit stronger. Because that is the one thing where the, the, the pillars go missing. And yeah, that, that can be a pain. But other than that, it's a fantastic board. So really enjoy that one. And I think that... Oh no, Josh Coleman provided one which is a generic... Yeah, I say generic in the, in the nicest terms. It's Osculoth ruins and some other ruins. It's basically the the who's who of, of terrain from the Lord of the Rings game put together really nicely across a river that he's made from, I think, old Warhammer movement trays. And, and he's done a fantastic job with that board. So that looks really nice as well. Generic's a bit of a derogatory term for it. It's a fantastic board. And then you provided, did you provide the rest of the boards? I believe so. We'll go through them, see if we can remember them first. There's some of the older ones, the Harrod, which has been around for a while now, but still is a fantastic board. It's a really good board to play on. There's your Amon Hen. I'm surprised Amon Hen got used. In the past, it's been modified to the point where it doesn't look like Amon Hen anymore with so much Goblin Town terrain on it to, to cover up the water. So it was it was nice to see that. But I must admit that one might get retired soon because it is it wasn't designed for tournament play and it's got probably just too much water in one area, one side of the board for proper gaming. You could, however, use your barrels out of the bond scenario so you have the whole massive river in the middle with a hill. You could use both sides of your river. Yeah, that's that's definitely an option. <laughs> it's still going to be tough to play. It's a bit on. slow. I think I think keeping the water features 
like prominent but not overwhelming is the way to go. But like it's a great looking board, but it's a, it's an oldie but a goodie. And um, then I had my last year's focus board, which is the Power Gear one, which I really love, and and I've neatened it up a little bit since then. But it's basically here starts cobblestones and terrain with lots of freestanding rubble and buildings and big lots of deep water, which I think I played a shallow water this year, but that's all right. And lots of trees on it, which is, I really like that board and it just works so well. And part of that was luck. It turned out quite well. It could have been, it was a big risk with all the water, but it just worked really well. I might continue painting a little bits of that, but I do use that a lot for scenarios as well. I really like the water, how it's quite versatile. You can make various board configurations because it's mostly just the here starts bricks with a few areas which have been left as water and you can arrange it quite well to make a variety of different gaming and terrain terrain layers. Yeah, you could put the river right down the middle and make it prominent. You could put it on the sides. You could put a mixture and and it works quite well and it's never never not around. You always have to do something but there's some serious bridges there so you can get around it. Then we had had my underground board so it has Goblin Town, it has... It had some generic rocky terrain, and, and it's one that I think it's one of the few boards I've got that people don't like playing on. People don't like playing on the Goblin Town terrain, which I think if I get a chance to, I might redo it with basically wall off the bottom so dice can't go under it, and so the, the actual terrain has a bit of a stronger foundation. Because I think that's the only complaint I get about that board. And I think it looks good, but that's one of the few that I've got complaints about the playing. Yes, it's, it's interesting to see how that. The Goblin Town has changed since an unexpected journey came out because originally we'd be playing on a full Goblin Town table which was made for the scenarios and then over the years it's changed and shrunk the amount of Goblin Town and they've been the scenery has been clumped together more to make it more and more playable and then it was combined with the underground board from last year which we made to something that's fairly playable now. I think it works. I think the the main thing is to just actually make the Goblin Town terrain purposely made buildings, make them a bit of King of the Hill style ones, so have the ladders going up, but glue them down, make them solid so they don't move around and get knocked and things. I think people would be happy with that as a tournament board. And luckily, I think Josh has given me his old Goblin Town board, which is a bit beat up, which I might do that with and fix it up for next year and, and make sure it looks good. So replace my one, which is really for the scenario. Then I had my Dol Guldor, same from last year. It's got some barrows. It's got some Dol Guldor ruins. And once again, this one looks quite good, I think. Uh, it's fun to play on. The ruins are quite dominating. And I got to play on it this year as well. And, and I really enjoy that one. And then you had your Numenor board, which was made from last year, but with a few changes. Yeah, a lot more trees on it this year. We got the trees from the Palagir table, put it on there. Uh, we, we spread the terrain out a little bit more, so it wasn't so much in columns. One of the pillars ended up broken, so we didn't use that. I've repainted the statue, so it actually looks like a an old statue rather than the, the weird gold I had before. I used a lot of the Games Workshop. I think it's a Verdigree paint. I can't remember what it's called, but it looks looks really good. That one really looks good, but I want to do something else with it. I really want to have a go at some marble effect on the terrain. I think that would look fantastic. I didn't get around for it this year. I may not get around for it next year, but I think I want to move on from that white-gray to go for a real marble effect. I think that'll look wonderful. I feel that we'll have to be looking through a Tomb King's army book because they seem to make good use of the marble painting. Yeah, the Tomb King's... The other one I've seen recently is Vordjil came out of a Space Marine Primark from the Ultramarines, and he's on this marble pillar, and it looks amazing. It's so fantastic. So I think I'm going to steal that color scheme and paint it them forge world character series really makes me want to play 40k or 30k but if only it had lord of the rings rules then we go Mm -hmm. and then i think 
we're up to the the key one for this year, which is the Rohan board. Okay, so Jeremy, you have just made this Rohan board. We saw in the lead up to Masters lots of photos of some really, really good stuff you've done with it. Could you explain what features are on this board? I think I've explained this many, many times. I'm so excited about this one. But for those who haven't heard, I've basically, to try and up my terrain, previously I've gone for a lot of MDF boards as the basis which look really good, but don't provide any contour whatsoever. They're cheap as anything. They work so well for for when you've got 12 plus boards. But I've got these tablescapes boards from Secret Weapon Miniatures, and they're one foot by one foot squares that, in the same way that you'd use a Realm of Battle board, you clip them together and you give a lot more variety. Now, the advantage of smaller squares is that they, they give you more variety to set up. You can set them up in different ways. The problem is they're all pretty generic ones like the ones for fantasy are pretty generic so i built foundations for the rohan houses and i think this is the key part of the the, the terrain overall i got here starts blocks the the rock ones and i made foundations for my building made them slightly bigger than the buildings the buildings i got from foreground they're saga buildings or historical middle age buildings i think they might be norse houses or danish hovels or something i'm not entirely sure maybe anglo-saxon anglo-saxon yeah it could I be anglo-saxon because the like norse anglo-saxon. ones are a bit different they don't have as much wall yeah you're right norse ones have the, the almost all roof yep so the anglo-saxon houses and i made a board section for each of them and the most important part was i made sure that the the buildings are all off center in different spots. So if you turn the board, you actually got a different effect. I think only one of the buildings was in the middle. The rest were off to the side. So if you turn them 90 degrees, you got a building in a different spot. And that was really important. Then I made some fields. So once I got the bricks, low fields, and then I put crops in these ones. And one, one of my fields is big. It's one foot square. And some of them were partially there to divide off the board. So one of them's next to a river and one of them's next to some, some heavy rocky outcrops. So Getting some very Rohan-specific boards. So I've got eight Rohan-specific tiles out of the 24 needed for the board. Then I've got eight specific tree tiles, woods tiles. So I've used the Games Workshop trees for these ones, which I've had for a long time. I went through a stage of I was going to do something with them, so I'll trade all my tournament winnings for Games Workshop trees, and then they sat unpainted, unassembled for a long, long time. And I must admit, I've never been a huge fan of them because they, they all look the same. And people often don't put the leaves on them, and they look very... They look great as a feature tree, but when you have a forest, they're not so good. But I basically got lots and lots of leaves. I glued them on with super glue, basically cut them out so they touched the middle trunk and went outwards. So I got a quite dense one and glued them to each other. In hindsight, I probably used something even stronger, like Araldite, to go in and, and really make them solid because they're, they're strong but brittle. So if they break, they break. And... I painted them. They took so long to make these trees, but they look fantastic. And then I've gone for the Games Workshop board. I took that in, glued it to the, the Secret Weapon tiles. I got some air dry, cheap air dry clay from, from Bunnings, put it around the Games Workshop tiles. I made sure I cut some of them up into to different shapes. So there's only one that's the actual standard shape. Then I took the branches, spare branches from the sprue, chopped those up and made roots coming out of the clay. So the roots come out and that area is actually raised a good centimeter up from the main area so it looks like the ground underneath the trees has been raised up which does happen for a lot of old trees where the root system just pushes the, the ground up then i've made sure the ground underneath the trees has been lots of leaf litter lots of dark flock very different color to the fields so you can see that where the trees go and this has been the huge advantage of it is the trees clip in and you can see that they're supposed to be trees you could use that area as difficult terrain and the tree trunk is quite dominant so it I was very happy with the woods 
Then, of course, there's some river boards and some generic fields. And the fields, I've got five different colors of flock and used it to essentially in a camouflage pattern because it's a little bit unnatural, but it looks really good from 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 far away and from gaming on it because it adds some variation. So I'm super happy with this board. It looked amazing. And then I added some details from some of the tabletop world terrain accessories, some groceries and things and put them around the buildings. So I think that sums up the tables, um, the table boards, but there was a bunch of other boards at this tournament, the display boards. Do you want to briefly go into some things you saw there? Oh, I want to go into one in particular. Look, we had a good mix of display boards from walls of of Helm's Deep to to ruins like Mason did to generic fields, all kinds of things. But there was one that really stood out to me, and that was Smaug's Cavern. So you had inside Erebor, you had the Lonely Mountain. Tim had taken his Smaug model. He has extended out the style of the Smaug base and made a whole carry case box with walls and pillars and a big staircase and, and continued it on, and his whole army fit in there. And I thought that was the most fabulous display board. And I always say this about Tim's display boards, but it was just a really wonderful display board. So, yeah, that I would love to do a whole table like that. That was amazing. Yes, yeah, so they'd make a really nice table wouldn't it, with gold hills, some big black pillars. Maybe a gold floor somewhere. Yeah, it's maybe some of the uh, the lava channels as well. You could actually justify your lava table a little bit on some edges of it. Um, I know that everyone likes lava, but it doesn't make a lot of sense in gaming. But this is one place where you possibly could have a have a a smelting machine. Yeah, so that's that's enough on terrain and things like that. Danny, let's get into the meat of it. Let's get into your army. Explain your army. This is the one that when you won it, first thing that got published was your army list because everyone said, oh, Danny won it. How did he win it? He must have had the best army in the world. Explain your army, Danny. Go. Okay, so I started with, I decided to use Eurokai Scouts because I hear lots of, I've never really seen them used competitively before. I've heard a lot of advice of, you just the great thing about Yorkai Scouts is you just take the captains with two hand axes and your piercing strike everywhere and then you spam warriors. Which it just didn't really mesh with me, so I decided to go for a bit of a different tactic. I have thirty six models in this eight hundred point army. Nine of them are heroes. So thirty six models is actually pretty close to standard for an eight hundred point force. You would have been outnumbered a few times, but not all the time. Yes, um considering that once I versed a three model army. Yeah, exactly. So 36 is a reasonable model, but having a quarter of your models as captains is the big change. So what that means is instead of the normal process, which is to take one captain, fill out an entire war band with 12 guys and have one in every 13 models as a captain, you've got one in every four models as a captain. So your average size war band is one hero and three warriors. Now, explain to me how you invented the term micro war bands. I did not invent the term micro war bands. I was using the concept of captain he- or hero captain heavy or hero heavy lists. That's the focus of the army. It's not the war bands per se. You could get away with sticking them all in two big war bands. It may be easier for deployment. This way seems a, seems a bit more thematic for the Yurikai Scout war band because it makes sense having one guy and his mates. I'm just making fun of Kylie because I think once your list got posted, she was very keen to claim credit for inventing this concept and and we never heard her talk about it before. So that's making fun of you, Kylie, a little bit there. Basically, it's a similar concept to what I used for my Lake Town Force, which went pretty well as well, where I had Bard, Legolas, Tariel, so big heroes, bigger than your heroes. Then I had things like Alfred, the Master, leading warbands. Bard had his own warband of, of Lake Town Guard. And then I had a, a unit of four dwarves, so the ones that are left in Lake Town. And it's the, the, the nine heroes idea. And ooh, 
It's a solid idea, isn't it? That army absolutely demolished me the last time I played against it with my Rivendell Knights. I thought I was doing well with about 13 points of might. It didn't, yeah, I just had not enough to deal with all your threats. And that's the thing, when you've got nine heroes, you end up with 20 points of might quite easily. And mm. that's fantastic, because you outmight everyone. Yes, especially I think with the Yurikai captains, because Yurikai scouts are fairly... They're fairly average, really. They have no spears. They're so they fight for troops, yeah. strength for, which is great, but they have no spears, so you don't really want to hoard them, per se, because unless you have no scenery on your board, you'll not be able to really make advantage of the numbers because you can only stick one row of men against it. However, Yurikai captains being fight five and strength five are just really just above average for the points. Yes, and, you know, they're agreed. Just, Two attacks, mm-hmm. good weapon options, yeah. They can threaten you know, your Faramirs and their really going to scare a normal captain and most troops' choices. So the I, I thought Yokai Scouts would be a really good place to try this captain-heavy sort of warbands. Yeah, I noticed you also had some feral Yorkai as well, which essentially function as mini-captains. They, they have a similar output as the captains, but not the might. So they're a good choice. You had... The one thing I liked about the army was a couple banners. Because yes. I think that's really important in a non-spear support army. I had two banners, which some people think a lot. I... I could have. I was originally considering three banners in the army, but I only had two hobbits on Yurikai, so that's all I took. I find the banners very, very useful because it's basically spear supporting and a six-inch section of your line for twenty-five points, which is quite useful. Yeah, and you did have some spears. You had some orc spears there, and I imagine you use them to support the captains occasionally or other models occasionally. I allied in Grishnak and four orc spearmen. I. Probably wouldn't take him again, but I, I just thought a few spears was That's really useful. interesting that you wouldn't take that again. Just just go for another Urukai captain and some more yeah. Urukai. I was thinking another shaman, because I only took one. Ah. And I, I didn't. the fury saves weren't useful, really. They they helped in a few games. I managed to botch the channel fury on the first turn against of the first game of the tournament against yeah. Daniel's Dwarves. But That's going to happen. Like, yeah. there's, there's, what is it, a one in nine chance you're going to fail it? The um, courage passing really was... Invaluable against Smaug because mm. then I could just auto pass the courage test and throw a model in against him every turn. I could, it really helped against Huon's Yurikai Berserk timing when I was broken. I did sort of a fury bubble how I had a captain starting within six inches of the shaman, him running to the object, running six inches towards the guy on the objective, making that guy pass this turn, and then the shaman would move to ca- get another captain who moved to get them another warrior in range. Yeah, the shaman, and the shaman does combo well, especially with captains, to give them that extra, well, increase your stand fast range, but also to when, you, when you're taking wounds, there's a lot more chance of, of passing your fate rolls when you've got some might up your sleeve and some fate up your sleeve and some fury saves up your sleeve. So it means that even if something big charges a captain, you've got a good chance of surviving it. Yes, because I've often struggled against Tiernan's Yurikai, um, just normal Yurikai army. The thing I found really hard against it, because you're wounding on sixes against it, and I can't roll sixes to wound. And then he'd be fury saving, and that made it really, really frustrating. And then you'd charge, you know, your big hero into Lurts or something, wound him three times, two fury saves, and you'd be like, uh So fury is potentially really, really useful for that. But I do find the courage is best. And I found the pike, no, the, no, the spear on the shaman, very oh, useful. Oh, yeah, 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 the so, shaman. Yeah. And a bit of might on the Shaman as well, which I guess you channel Fury quite a bit, but... I assumed when going into the tournament that I'd be versing Ring Rats all the time and I'd just be sapping my will and my Fury would be useless. However, I considered that the Shaman was only 
you know, I was giving up four models to use a shaman. So yeah, I, I think it it does the times when it works, it does work really well. And that you you pointed out the courage is the the main thing about that. That's super important. You don't want to be wasting your captain's stats on on passing courage tests. And you also had some all some Urukai bowmen, and you had one marauder. Is that right? Yes, Murhu was accompanied by one marauder. I converted him by getting a Urukai scout without shield, and I gave him a Rohan shield yep. to go with Murhu, who has a Rohan cloak, a Rohan guide cloak. In the future, I'll probably take a few more marauders just because the move eight's helpful, and Murhu otherwise will get get himself killed when he tries to do that's, some movement That surprised me most about the list. I thought even dropping one of the ferals down to an Urukai and then upgrading a few to get the speed bonus, because I thought that move eight is your speed in your army. You don't have anything else that moves that fast. So you'd be able to capture objectives with them and, and move around could be very useful. But it's a good army overall. You've got enough models to survive against most things. You've got incredible amount of mites and captains. You've got really strong average captains throughout your whole army, which are tough to take down, and they can always strike up and do things. So it's a solid army list. Is it a world beater? Is it an army list that, that you're guaranteed to win with? No, because I lost the game. So <laughs> there we go. And I t- I did take a very similar army, lots of your so six heroes in six hundred and fifty points at the Silmarillion this year, earlier this year, and I came about halfway. So okay, so it's you, you had to play the game. It's not going to play itself this list, and it does it will struggle against say a uh, fairly hero heavy alpha army or something, yep. just with where which with higher fight than my captains so that they have to spend resource trying to win combats. So, Danny, can you just go through, before we finish our Masters coverage, go through your games, explain what you played, what you played against, and, and just some general tactics overall. So, my first game was Breakthrough against Daniel Jones. He had a dwarf army with some uh, Warriors of Erebor and Grimhammers, is that right? I think so, led by Thrain. So, in this Breakthrough mission, the objective was to get seven models off, I think, break your opponent, and then the game end at quarter. I was going to really, really struggle breaking a dwarf army that outnumbered me. So what I did, due to having more warbands, having nine warbands compared to, I think, it's about four, I waited to deploy, and I deployed my... So Lurts and Grishnak on one flank, so six points of might between them, and they just marched halfway up the board, then Grishnak broke off, and Lurts marched the rest of the way up with his mates and they just ran off the board straight up the rest of the um the rest of the game was basically trying to get myself killed while you know not getting myself killed too badly and trying to delay thrain while to stop him getting off the board and i managed to die i almost broke him but i don't think i quite broke daniel and then the game got myself quartered and won that one. So stopping the dwarves getting off, which is not the hardest thing in the world because they're reasonably slow. It's funny that trying to get yourself killed because Daniel could have shielded with his terrible warriors and he could have bashed with his grim hammers. So he could have actually done non-lethal strikes the whole way through. Daniel did, once he realized I was getting close to quarter, do lots of shielding, lots of non-lethal attacks. I... I was glad that in in hindsight, I'm really glad that I fouled that fury because I'd have made getting quartered really hard. But as it was, I can't pass courage tests, so I was already broken at that stage. Oh, uh, and you could actually use your might to break even faster, so there's options there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I did struggle running away in time. It's quite close. Sounds a close game. Okay, next one, round two. Okay, round two. So this was against Thomas Dado. He took, I think it was a combination of. Gondor, some Wood Elves, and Vatagast on Eagle. Yes, yeah, an interesting combination. So it's in supply lines where there's three objectives and you get points for holding them each turn. 
I managed to grab my objective obvi- fairly obviously, and I got the middle objective. Yep, so he, he played off you, you took the yep. middle objective. Yep. So I held that most game. However, Radagast was quite good at hero killing. I forgot that the safest place for my heroes is actually on the front line in this sort of circumstance because the eagle can't reach them then. So Thomas managed to kill two or three heroes and keep the supply tracks his way for the first bit of the game until Radagast ran out of might. I was really glad that Gildor and Radagast didn't cast any spells against me. I was a bit scared of them, but there was apparently no opportune moments to do that. But I'm glad the game ran out before. So did you get a win on that one as well? Yes, that's actually was one of my better wins, 19-6 win. Okay, so, so you, I guess you ended yeah. up with the objectives at the end. Yeah, I ended up with two of the objectives. Murho was very impressive in that one. Him and his Marauder ran towards four Wood Elf Bowmen on the other objective. The Marauder got shot out. Murho charged in, got surrounded by four, and managed to kill three, three Bowmen in one turn. And then him and the Bowmen just bounced off each other with the rest of the game. But that took the objective off Thomas. So Oh, excellent. That... Really swung it in my way. And round three, final one of day one. Round three, the grand glorious loss against Shuon's Yurikai Berserker and Yurikai Crossbow Army. Really scary looking one. He outnumbered me. He had 20-something Berserkers, four heroes, lots of crossbows. And this was in season control, so saw like domination. In hindsight, I should have... Well... Firstly, I tried to leave Lurtz and Vashko and take some objectives with leaves some of my army on objectives and then I tried to break them with the rest. In hindsight, I should have kept all my army together because the Berserkers don't really care when they're broken and work better separately than me. I should have tried to keep all my heroes doing killing and just tried to keep the rest of my army alive. That's not a bad idea to hide everything behind your heroes and let the Fight 5 take care of itself. So Huon ended up beating me in that, but I did almost quarter him. Quarter him, so it's a good effort yeah. against Berserkers. Ewan ended up finished second, yes. I think. So that's he's a good player, yeah. and I might as well say as well. Michael Kerr from New South Wales got third place as well. So, so some solid players, in the top three. So that was the end of day one. Day two, you've come you're coming off with two wins and a loss, so a decent start to the tournament. So day two, there's three scenarios left: random encounter, race to the prize, and clash of the champions. My draw was for was against Tim Wright's Smaug. And I was very, very glad that I got Random Encounter for this because Contest of Champions, I would have really, really died. Yes, yeah, the Contest of Champions, Smaug would have got that quite comfortably. The Random Encounter is where both players get an assortment of of objectives, three different objectives to get. About half of them, or maybe even over half of them, are movement-based and capture objectives, and the other ones are about either breaking or killing. So it's a good mission to get Smaug in. Mm-hmm. So I ended up my objectives breakthrough, capture my own objectives, and to break the enemy's army. The that one was pretty much right off from the start because I'd have to kill three models in order to break a three model army. Yeah, you have to wipe them out entirely. And I didn't fancy my chances of taking the twenty wounds of Smaug. I could have possibly done it, but it wasn't the objective of the game really. So I just rode them eight points off and went for the other ones, which was get across the board and get my objectives. And the rest of it was just trying to keep alive. And you know that Smaug and the Castellans can only do so much. So you, you, you basically force them to play the game. And look, I think you could have had a good go at Smaug, but mm-hmm. if he stood off and fireballed you, you probably would have been in a bit yeah. of trouble. I was very glad that Smaug deployed quite close to my men, so I could get a first-turn charge with a failure into him. And then the rest of the game, I just was using Fury and sending 
heroic moves because Smaug didn't dare use waste oh, his yes, might yep. on because only three might against twenty. Yeah, so you had you had the movement every so turn. So I just managed to him. move, and um, Tim had some very unlucky heroic combats where he botched with Smaug. So Ooh, um, nasty. But later la- later in the game, I, after I managed to kill both Castellans, he managed to get the priority, get the heroic move, and fly away. And that was really scary because if he had done that earlier. I'd have been in trouble because the fireballs would have made a mess of my men. I've got a little quick story about Tim as well. At the start of day two, Tim, I was about to start my game and Tim came up to me and said, can I borrow a Castellan, Jeremy? One of mine's gone missing. I don't know where it is. So I drove home very quickly. I only lived just down the road. Picked up a Castellan, brought it to him. And so he got to use one of my Castellans instead of his. So you would have seen that in the game. It mm-hmm. would have been the, the one that was worst painted, I guess. And then halfway through the second day, he came up to me laughing, giggling away. Chuckly, he said... Basically, his girlfriend's cat stole his Castellan and put it out in the middle of the road. And his girlfriend found it halfway through the day, untouched, middle of the road, single Castellan there with gold on its base in the middle of the road, safe and sound. Yeah, but go on to round five. Round five was Rash Surprise against Sunal. He had, what was it? Gondor? It's a Gondor. Gondor and, and Ten Sons of Eol or something. Yeah, it's, I think it's a Kyrian and Earl alliance. So that one was a bit tricky because the Sons of Eol just really mince through me. However, I managed to block him off a bit and tie up his most of his army while my archers, so Vrashkru and my captain with bow, managed to run on from the edges and take the objective. And then I had some very lucky shots last, last the last few turns of the game, shooting out Eol from combat and shooting the outrider carrying the artifact in the corner of the board. So that one, I was got me a few more extra points, but I managed to win that one. And then the final round. So you're at the top tables, and this is where everyone's asked you to spoil a very good player. So you're up against, was it Patrick? Yes, Patrick Patrick had, I think, not lost any games so yeah, far. he was on five wins, and at this point, probably the favourite to win the tournament, mm-hmm. and well-deserved favourite as well. He was a solid player. Yeah, he had quite a nice, nasty army. So it had a Cave Drake, Shelob, Bunch of Spiders, Ashrak, I think... Droblog, Druzhag. Yeah, some, some, all the, and all Black the Shields. There. Yes. Yeah, some really nasty goblin stuff. And probably not the biggest goblin army in the world, but it got a lot of nasty yeah. things in it. That was a clash of the champions. So it started with Patrick trying to kill off his champion, Groblog, in order to make Shelob or the Cave Drake the champion. Yeah, which is a smart move because Groblog's not going to do a whole lot of kills. Pat ended up hurling at Groblog and killing him through several hurls with the Cave Drake. <laughs> Meanwhile, cool. Patrick really hid behind the Numenor train so that my champion Lurch had a nice big slog to get to anything worth killing. Yep. However, I managed to, just mainly due to my might, Patrick ran out of resources using, um, you know, heroic combats and Rage Beast on the Shelob and stuff. He just managed to, he just ran out of might and because Shelob doesn't have might and the Cave Drake only had one, it was fairly, fairly easy for my captains to strike up and yeah, take down the monsters. Yeah. yeah. So I end up managed to take down the monsters and win that one. Yeah. How many kills did you end up getting with Lurtz? Patrick managed to get one with his Shelob, I think, or one with the Cave Drake. And then Lurtz was on one because yep. he'd only been in one combat. In the last turn of the game, Lurtz charged into a one goblin, heroic combated, killed that goblin, charged into another goblin and killed it, which got me the, the extra double. two kills and got me the double. Because yeah, the, the otherwise, it would have been a... 10-5 win as opposed to like... Yeah, so you turned a small win into a big win on one heroic combat at the mm. end of the game. So yes. sounds like a real close game if it's yep. one kill each up to the last turn. That's that's a solid result. And I guess maybe just having Groblog as the leader might have cost it, Patrick. If you had mm-hmm. the Drake early on or something like that, it might have done a bit more damage. 
Yes, because the, the Jake got most of its kills early when I didn't have my captains in it because I was busy running away from it pretty much. Yeah, but I think Drake's and the Shields are both independent, so they can't be the leader. So yes. that's, yeah, that's fair enough. So well done, Danny. Congratulations on the win. And look, whenever we need to get some tactics talk, we'll get you on and you can tell us all your brilliant ideas because you are the master for 2015. No comment. <laughs> Thank you. coming of the necromancer there is little in middle earth that has remained unchanged by sauron's eternal war against the free across gondor and rohan towns and villages have become little more than armed camps bounded with strong walls lest they be assailed in the deep night to become tumbled and contested ruins the realms of elves and dwarves denuded and shrunk by years of strife against the servants of the dark lord have become wary and insular the better to maintain their guard Fear is the chief tool of the Lord of Mordor, and its tendrils have sunk deep across Middle-earth, provoking changes that will take a thousand years to heal. Nowhere is the touch of Sauron more obvious than in Ravanion, the land that lies east of the Misty Mountains and north of Rohan. Here, dominating the wide plains that fall under its shadow, lies the dark and tangled mass of Mirkwood. This mighty forest is an enduring testament to Sauron's malice and corrupting influence, for it was once a wholesome place until the Dark Lord took up abode under its boughs. In those days it was known as Greenwood the Great, for it was as noble in its way as the forests of Fangorn and Lothlorien, and many times their size. It was here that Sauron came in secret during the first half of the Third Age, still reeling from his defeat at the hands of the last alliance of men and elves some centuries before. Knowing that the folk of Gondor still kept watch upon the bounds of Mordor, Sauron sought a new lair from which to rebuild his strength. It will never truly be known why the Dark Lord chose the southern Greenwood for this purpose, for that secret rests solely in the mind of Sauron. Certainly no realm claimed ownership of the southern bounds of the forest, for the elves of Greenwood largely had their halls in the north, and the men of Ravanion were ever reluctant to stray into its depths. It is possible that Dark Lord deliberately sighted his new lair atop the ruins of an older, long-abandoned fortress from the days of Morgoth, in the hopes of rekindling any power that resided in its ruins. Wherever the truth of the matter lies, the coming of Sauron to Greenwood changed the forest forever. Slowly, but inexorably, the presence of the Dark Lord corrupted and changed the forest beyond all recognition. The trees became twisted and the very air itself became heavy with malice and spite. Evil creatures began to venture under the trees, drawn by an unwholesome presence of the Dark Lord of the Rings. Whether spiders from Ethelduath, or wags and orcs from the plains of Anduin, they came in great numbers and in brazen defiance of the elves who lived there. Such changes could not go unnoticed forever and soon tales came to the ears of men and elves that a great evil now dwelt in the forest of Greenwood. A necromancer of great power resided in a dark and twisted tower that seemed almost alive and unaware, atop a pit of shadow from where there was no escape. Greenwood was a noble place no longer, but had become the impressive and malignant forest Mirkwood. The worst of the changes were seen in the glades surrounding Sauron's new home, Dol Guldor, the Hill of Sorcery, yet throughout the forest his influence was plain. Shortly thereafter, the elves of Mirkwood found themselves beset on all sides as the very forest seemed to turn against them. Despite the dark terror that their home had become, the elves of Mirkwood did not yield and fought on to reclaim their home, though with little help from beyond their borders. 
For many long years, the necromancer gathered strength in his fortress, directing from afar his minions in other lands. Why the Free Peoples allowed his grip on Mirkwood for so long is unknown, though they would have often find themselves challenged in other quarters. Indeed, the Third Age saw many troubles to distract its kingdoms, plague, restless Haradrim in the south, or invading forces of Agmar in the north, to name but a few. It is likely that the necromancer endured simply by remaining a less immediate foe. Dol Guldor remained unopposed, save for those who directly threatened, the elves of Mirkwood, who were faced with a battle they could not win alone. Only when Gandalf the Grey entered the dungeons of the necromancer's lair did the wheels of fate begin to turn against Sauron. For some time, the wizard had feared that the master of Dol Guldor was none other than the Dark Lord, and beneath the Hill of Sorcery he found all proof that he required. Faced with this knowledge, the White Council was no longer able to postpone confrontation with the darkness at the heart of Mirkwood. Though Saruman the White, then the master of the council, stalled preparations to suit his own ends, the wires were able to marshal forces in preparation of assaulting Dol Guldor. Never before or since in the Third Age had so many powerful individuals been assembled in one place. The stage was set for one of the greatest battles ever to be seen in Middle-earth. Welcome to A Shadow in the Past, the segment where I look back at some of the publications that Games Workshop has put out for the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit strategy battle games and discuss their usefulness today, whether they're worth getting your eyes on, whether they're worth checking out, and how much I've enjoyed playing through them. Today I'm going to go through The Fall of the Necromancer, which was a source book, so one of the smaller books, produced in 2006. So we've got that pretty much a couple of years after The Return of the King, before The War of the Ring. It was when Gandalf and the White Council went and assaulted Dol Guldor and, and moved the Necromancer on. This was covered briefly, I guess, in the Hobbit movies, probably a little less than I'd actually hoped, because this is one of my favourite scenes in the books, and it's always one that I've really imagined to be quite grand. It's mentioned very slightly in the Hobbit books, where basically Gandalf just disappears and says he's going to go find a Necromancer. It doesn't explain it Sauron, but later on, I think it might have been even in an Unfinished Tales, where Gandalf's recounting his story, his side of the Hobbit to whoever's listening, I think it's some of the Hobbits from the Shire, explains what happened a little bit more, but still there's a lot of areas where we don't actually know what happens. So this book goes through some of them and gives Matt Ward and Pete Haynes' take on that. So in the book, we start off with the the foreword and story, which we went through just before. I decided to read that out because I quite enjoy it. Uh, Hopefully you'd enjoyed it too. Then we have this fantastic set of maps. So we've got two maps, both the A4 size roughly, one is basically of Middle-earth. It goes from Angmar to Mordor with a Ravanion in the middle. And then the nice square shows Mirkwood. Mirkwood's quite a big place. It's, it's Compare it to Angmar, it looks quite much bigger than Angmar. It's big, way bigger than Fangorn the forest, way bigger than Lorien. Lorien's tiny compared to that. It's comparable to the size of Mordor, to be honest. So you've got quite a big area of Mirkwood, a huge place. I never imagined it really that big, but it, it definitely is. And you've got the Lonely Mountain, Erebor, quite tiny next to it. You've got mountains of Mirkwood inside it, uh, Eskaroth and the river. And then further to the east, you've got the Iron Hills. To the north, you've got the Grey Mountains. To the west, you've got Moria. And to the south, you've got the very interesting place called the Brownlands, which had the Dagland and, and basically big plains. Then you've got a close-up of the board of Mirkwood. And this is really great because it goes through the scenarios in the book. It shows exactly whereabouts in Mirkwood they are. So it looks like they start up basically in the north of Mirkwood and slowly move down to the south and eventually get to the Hill of Sorcery with Dol Guldor. I really like these maps, and I like the style of artwork. They've also got a big Castellan in there, which looks fantastic. It really is evocative. The artwork, the nice monotone colours with the 
it looks like an off green and brown in there. Really like those pages. Then we go straight into the scenario. So, of course, I became happy with that when, when we found that out. We start off with one, which is basically a little introduction, and it, it gets you set up with the participants. You've got Tharendwil, three Sentinels, 12 Wood Elf Warriors, and then for evil, four Spiders and two Bat Swarms on a two-foot-by-two-foot two board with dense forest. This one's called Dol Guldur Awakens. I'm not going to go into too much details of the scenarios for this because I hope to put them in scenario spotlights at some time in the future. But this one we found heavily favoured the good side. So we made some changes to make it a bit more challenging, but it really shows off the spiders and the bats a bit. Also the Mirkwood Warriors. It's got some rules about basically the way the spiders come on. And if you play it straight out of the box, it's incredibly easy for the good side. So you will need to make some changes to that one to make it harder. But you've got some nice models. This, these were all models that were introduced in this book. So you've got Tharendwil, the older version of that. You've got three Wood Elf Sentinels, 12 Wood Elf Warriors. Now, these models aren't my favorite models in the world. The, the old elves weren't fantastic. There's a bit of a scale issue with them. They're, they're slightly smaller than you expect of elves. The heads don't look fantastic. Uh, the Tharendwil model's quite good. The Sentinel models are okay, but once again, they're not my favorite models. The evil models are good, though. The spiders bit monotonous in their poses, but they look quite good. And the bat swarms are fantastic. Really like the bat swarms. Only one bat swarm pose, but it just looks wonderful. I do like that bat swarm. Then we go to a nick of time, which is on a four foot by four foot board, which is about the standard at the time. And we've got Tharendul, Legolas, and Elrond, and then an alliance of elves. So the wood elves, the wood elf sentinels, and then some elf warriors. So only 11 elf warriors. You've got four with blade, four with bow, three with spears and shield. And one of them can carry a banner. I really like that they've thought about the way they've they've released the models for these. So you've got one blister pack of the High Elves at the time. You've got the one blister pack of the Sentinels and a couple sprues of the Wood Elf Warriors and the Elf Warriors. So this tells me they've put some thought into the scenarios, and I like that. On Evil, you've got Kamal the Easterling, and I believe this may have been one of his first appearances. I'll check that up in a moment, but I think it was because he was around Orgoldor quite a bit. A Wild Wild Chieftain, once again, I think it's first appearance. Orc Captains, they've been around for ages. Orc Warriors, 24 of them, so the plastic box set. One of them can have a banner. Three Wild Wags, four Giant Spiders, and two Bat Swarms. So a nice mix of Dolgold or Nasties appropriate at the time. Now, these scenarios also have points matches for alternative forces. And normally, I don't really want to do that. I, I want to play them as the set participants. But now that we've got updated models for most of these guys, we've got the Mirkwood Rangers, which would be fantastic. You've got new profiles for Tharanduil, Elrond, Legolas. You've got basically some Felwags, which would be fantastic. You've got different types of spiders with the, the Mirkwood spiders. I think it would be great to update these a little bit and play through them with some different forces. But I remember this one being quite a fun scenario where you've got the big heroes going through and against a good number of forces. This battle feels like a, an actual battle, even though it's only thirty, just over 30 models aside. Bit less on the good side, bit more on the evil side. Really does feel like a battle. Next one is a walk through dark places. Now this one, once again, you've got a skirmish force. So you've got Kirdan first appearance. You've got Arwen Evenstar, not the first appearance. You've got Aristor, which is, I believe, his first appearance as well. And Glorfindel, Lord of the West, which is the Glorfindel with armor at the time. So once again, models that came came out in this scenario. You've got small amount of high elves, elf captain, and then some warriors with heavy armor with bows and blades, and then they can have a banner. This one, I think, needs a bit of a balancing as well. They're basically the good force starts around a rock, and you've got to go attack them with the evil force of four Castellans. First time the Castellans appeared with Morgul Blade, two Bat Swarms, and four Wild Wags. Now, the Castellan models, once again, these weren't my favorite models. I think the elves that, that came out were quite nice. I like Kiden, I like Arrestor, 
I like Glorfindel. I prefer Glorfindel to Arrestor. I think the Glorfindel with the cape and the armor looks just a little bit nicer than Arrestor, but they're both good models. Initially, it was a bit of a shock to see different armor for High Elves because it didn't really match the other armor, but I've grown to like it. I see it more of a, a first age armor, which, which I really like now. But the Castellans, the artwork for the Castellans is so good. The models, in my opinion, of course, I know that other people really like them, but they just don't quite match it. I think it's maybe a little bit of the goofy pose. Maybe it's, it's they're a little bit too exaggerated in the, the armor and things, like very big feet and shoulder pads and things. And and the proportions just seem a little bit big for, for the Lord of the Rings. So they're not my favorite models, and I'd happily convert them up into something else if I if I ever get around to doing this again. But this is a fun scenario, and it's good to use these participants which weren't really around. Then we have one of my favorite scenarios that have been released, Metal Knot in the Affair of Wizards. This one, the good participants, Gandalf, Radagast, Saruman, all on foot. Fantastic. Immediately, you've got this idea of the wizards coming in and doing their own thing, and it shows off how brilliant they are, the wizards. For evil, you've got four Castellans of Dol Guldur. Now, they weaken them all to only have five wills, so the wizards can actually go toe-to-toe with them for a little while. Then you've got an orc captain, which we assume is riding a wag, because the rest are wag riders, six wag riders, so one box of wag riders, and then the three wild wags. Again, a small scenario on a two-foot-by-two-foot board. This one we always have fun playing. It's a really good scenario. It's With the new rules, it doesn't quite work. I think it, the old rules, it was great, but the ability to channel the terrifying aura really makes it incredibly difficult for the evil side. So I'll go through that in a bit more detail in a scenario spotlight in the future. But I really do enjoy this scenario, and I love the idea of the three wizards fighting together. So this scenario is definitely one of one of the most evocative and one of the ones I really like. It's just, playing with wizards is great. It's so Lord of the Rings. Then we have another one on a small board, two foot by two foot board. So you could really do up a nice two foot by two foot board for these scenarios and, and enjoy it and play with it quite a bit. It's nice to be able to play on a small area of the table. It's a lair of the Spider Queen, Galadriel, Caliborn, some Wood Elf Sentinels and some Wood Elf Warriors against the Spider Queen, some giant spiders, four of them, two bat swarms, six wild wags, small participants again, showing off the Spider Queen. Spider Queen model, this was when she was first released as well. Love the Broodling models. The Spider Queen, the way they put the legs together doesn't work for me. Now, I know that some spiders do pose like that, but I, I actually chopped my legs in half, split them up and bent them, and I think it looks much better that way. The model itself is okay. I prefer that some of the other spiders, the Mirkwood spiders or Shelob, but the Spider Queen's okay, and it does have lots of broodlings coming out of it. But this is, once again, a fantastic one. I think it needed a little bit of tweaking as well, but I think we found most of them did. There's one where you get caught in webs throughout the scenario. So, fun scenario. The nice thing about these small scenarios is it's pretty easy to balance them up. You just change a rule or two here, and away you go. Then you start to get to the big battle, the Shadow of Dol Guldur. So I think this is our penultimate battle here. You've got a four foot by four foot board with four barrows on it and some rocks and some trees. The board they picture themselves looks very makeable. It's not their, their best work, to be honest, but it does the job and it looks pretty good. You've got Elrond, Wood Elf Sentinels, Wood Elf Warriors, High Elf Warriors, sorry, and then Wood Elf Warriors as well. Quite a lot of them. Three Wood Elf Sentinels, 25 High Elves. So nine Spear Shield, eight with Blade, eight with Bow, one can have a banner. And 24 Wood Elf Warriors. So looking at 50 models on the, the good side. Then on the evil side, you've got a Ringwraith, a Wild Wag Chieftain, an Orc Captain, a Castellan, 24 Orc Warriors, three Wild Wags, four Giant Spiders, two Bat Swarms, a Mordor Troll. And the Ringwraiths are, are full. Well, the Ringwraith is full. Only one of them. 
This is one where, if I remember correctly, the elves have to run from one side of the board and the other, and the evil just keeps pouring out of the uh, the barrows, and you have to make a real choice as the evil player, which forces you want to come out. It's a really fun scenario, and I would like to try it under the new rules. I really enjoyed this one and the choices it presented, and having the elves have to run, because at this time, the way you usually played elves would just stand there, shoot, stand there, shoot, stand there, shoot. No good in this one. You have to use your sentinels to attack. You have to go at them with Elrond. But you don't, you've only got the one hero, so they can get bogged down, and especially with the fact that there's a Castellan, a Ringwraith, and a, a Mortal Troll, Elrond can, can get squished quite easily. The final scenario, and another great one, the Fall of the Necromancer. Two foot by two foot board with a, a Dol Guldor tower in the middle of it, and the Lair of the Spider Queen there as well. This is an all hero fight. We've got Gandalf, Sauron, Radagast, Arwen, Círdan, Glorfindel, Arrestor, Elrond, Galadriel, Celeborn, Tharanduil, Legolas. So pretty much everyone that could have been in Dol Guldor they put there. I know in the Hobbit movies some of them weren't there, and they really shrunk it down, which surprised me. I guess it's easy to follow a small amount of characters, but then you've got on the evil side the Necromancer. The Necromancer's first release, Kamul, five Ringwraiths, four Castellans, a Troll Chieftain, a Mortal Troll, and four Giant Spiders. So there is some troops, giant spiders and a mortar troll, but not a lot. This one, you get to show off how good you are with the heroes. If you become a good hero player, the, the good side can take them on pretty well. It's very hard for the evil side, but it's a great fun scenario to play through. And, and this is one that I've always enjoyed. I've never, never regretted playing through this one. There is so much spells going on, so much will you can use. It's just really great, and I like that they've shrunk it down to a small board, so you've got the really exciting part of the battlefield. So I enjoy this scenario once again. A bit of spoilers for Scenario Spotlight, I guess, in the future, but this one's well worth doing. So overall, seven scenarios, which is not a huge amount, but they're all good in their own way. They've all got a good choice of models and, and really well done. Then we move on to some painting guides, which are a little bit dated now. Our painting's a bit moved on. You've got a Gladrill in a nice blue and blue form, which is okay, they're very simple paint things. They've got just basically the old paints, so things like base coat hair with bronze flesh, base coat the skin with bleached bone, finally shade both of a mixture of blue and green ink. Clearly, they did not paint their models like this. This is They've got very well-painted models with very simple instructions how to paint them, so I guess it might be disappointing to some people to follow these instructions and not get the result they want. You've got Kirdan, Saruman, Arrestor, Glorfindel, and then you've got the Wood Elves and Tharanduil as well. Then on the evil side, you've got painting guides for the Necromancer, Kamul, Castellans, Giant Bats, and Spider Queen and Giant Spiders. I like the Giant Spider ones because it's got your different spider markings. Some of them look really good. I like the the one with the white tail, and I like the the one that... I actually like the blue one quite a bit, but some of them are a bit fantastic as well, like the green one. But it's a, it's a good guide to show you can paint your spiders in different ways. The rest are pretty simple. I'm not so sure about the Necromancer's color scheme. The green... Uh, I prefer the fire red now that you see, or a ghostly color. Then you've got your terrain guides, and I really do enjoy these terrain guides. It gives me lots of ideas for making terrain. I'm a massive fan of making terrain. These ones, you've got the old Games Workshop trees, which were, were great trees. I don't actually have any. I wish I did. They're basically like wire bottle brush trees. They were quite sturdy and looked quite good. And they show you how to make them like Coldor, and this is one of the best modeling techniques ever. To break up the regular shape of foliage, hit it with a hammer. And then it's got a little asterisk that says, be careful using this tool. Only use it on a solid surface and one that you don't mind getting damaged. So bash up your trees with a hammer. Brilliant. Really like that. And they've got the uh, these cobwebs with hamster bedding. So that's that's quite clever. And it looks quite good. I might get some of that and maybe add it to my Dol Guldor board. They show you how to make trees on a base. And this is 
almost a precursor to the Citadel Forest. It looks very similar to what they eventually made that out of. So it looks looks quite good and it's quite functional. You can take the trees out if you want. It really does look fantastic, the trees. Then you've got two buildings, which are a little bit uninspiring, but they give you a really good basis to start with. The Lair of the Spider Queen and the Tower of Dol Guldur. The Tower of the Goldor, I like the spikes at the top, but the rest of it's very plain. It's very small. Then you've got this Lair of the Spider Queen, which also very simple. I've done my own versions of these in my Dol Guldur board out of the Here Starts blocks, which I think look much more interesting. But they're a really good start, and they're, they're functional, and they do their job, and they're, they're reasonably simple to make. They've got good instructions how to make it. They use a lot of foam board, which I remember finding it hard to, to buy when these first came out, but now it seems really easy to buy. I just go to to office works in Australia that has them, also a craft store. It's really easy to get foam board. It's a great material to work with. Just make sure you don't spray paint it because it'll eat up the foam quite easily. Then they've got the barricades. They've made rocks out of slate and stand them up. These will look good for like placed rocks, but they look very unnatural the way they've got the barricades. I think most people could do a better job of that. But once again, it's a good idea and it's functional terrain. Then painting guide for the tomb, instructions on making the tower, Templates, which are always handy, where you can photocopy the templates, make them bigger, and, and put them out now. Before we had lots of internet templates, this was a good thing. And then this book, continuing with its logical layout, to be honest, has the rules for the new models. So these are incredibly dated now and, and have probably changed so much. You've got Saruman, Radagast, Galadriel, Kirdan, Glorfindel, Arrestor, Tharanduil, Wood Elf Captain, Wood Elf Sentinel, and Wood Elf Warrior. If you want the updated versions of these profiles, I think most of them are in the Free People's book from the Lord of the Rings, and then you've also got some in the the latest uh, Hobbit book as well. Um, you've got some in the Desolation of Smaug, you've got some in the Battle of the Five Armies, there might even be some in the the Hobbit rule book as well, I think the Elrond maybe. So those profiles are all over the place now. Then for evil, you've got the Necromancer, so that's in, I believe, the Mordor book. You've got Kamul, so also in the Mordor book, I believe. The Spider Queen, yep. Uh, Castellan, yes. Wild Wild Chieftain, Bat Swarm, Giant Spider, Wild Wild. I think they're all in the Mortal book, which makes a lot of sense. So that's that's a good mixture of guys. In terms of releases of models, the, this wasn't the most inspiring release of models. The, the ones that I really like out of this are the elf heroes, like Glorfindel and Círdan and Arrestor. I think they're quite good. The Saruman's a nice pose of Saruman. Tharendul is a good model, but I guess I like the new one a bit better. And for the evil... I like I like the bat swarms and the other ones I'm okay on on all the rest but none of them are, are very much a run out and buy them models for me but I, of course I did them all because the scenarios themselves are really fun and a great use of time I would love to see this book being updated by either some fans or by by Games Workshop to include the new models I think it would be fantastic with the new Hobbit models and look I might actually do that at some point or maybe we'll get our listeners to have a go at that. But I think that would be fantastic to, to redo this. So if you can get get your eyes on the book, I recommend doing it. It's, it's a really nice book. It's well laid out. It's one of the better laid out books, to be honest. It's logical. It makes sense. You've got scenarios in one spot. You've got the rules in one spot. You've got the terrain making guides in one spot. Terrain guides are still functional. You've got the scenarios, which I think with just a little bit of tweaking is still very fun. The rules, of course, they're well outdated, so you don't need those anymore. But the artwork's great in it as well. So for the Necromancer book from the Lord of the Rings Strategy Battle game, go out and check it out if you can. Concerning Balance 
This segment is where I'm going to go in-depth in some of the topics that we've been talking about in Wargaming of late and put my own thoughts into them. I will try not to offend anyone, of course, but it may happen at times, so I apologize if that. That's not my intention, and if you feel I've done any group wrong, please tell me about it, and I'll happily make amends if needs be. But we're talking about the word balance, which we hear thrown around war games quite a bit, and there's been a big release of, of one of Games Workshop, other games, the Warhammer, their latest edition, that has got people, a lot of people talking about balance because if you haven't heard, they've released the game which they've put no points to the models. So at the moment, no points to the models, and that's been generating a lot of discussion about balancing games. So first of all, I'll talk about what is balance and, and why is this something that people desire, and then I'll go into it, and I'll try and relate it to Lord of the Rings as much as possible. It might be impossible not to mention some other game systems, of course, but once again... Our focus is Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. So what is balance? People talk about balancing a game, and I think it's the idea that where people will use whatever rules there is for choosing forces and come up with an evenly matched game. So if I choose a mortar army and you choose an elf army, and we agree upon a points level, so say 600 points, we put together our forces, we should play a game where both of us has an even chance of winning, and it comes down to player skill. Now, this is not always desirable. If I'm playing someone who's who's got less skill or more skill than me, we might want an unbalanced game. We might want to give me a disadvantage so it's harder for me to win and, and gives my opponent who maybe is less experienced more of an advantage. Or they might want to give me more of an advantage so we can and for someone who's more experienced so we can play an even game. So forces balanced assumes that you have essentially evenly matched players. Now some people like to use this as a test of skill. So the game's balanced, so if, I've, if I'm better or I win the game, I'm a higher skill player. And sometimes this is the case. Sometimes it's not. And and sometimes we give these kind of players a, a derogatory name, call them power gamers, and the idea that, that they want to, to win at all costs. But this is something that I think we all do at times. And, and I'm kidding myself if I say I don't do it at times. So I don't know that we necessarily want to create a derogatory term. Now, would I want to do it all the time? No, I wouldn't want to. But some tournaments I've gone, we've, we've trying to take basically the best force I can for my points and and see how I go. And oftentimes it works out well. The other thing is scenario balance. So we we talk about balancing scenarios and a lot of people read through scenarios, look at it, calculate the points and go, this scenario is not balanced straight away. And I I encourage people to play through the scenarios first because the problem with points, and, and I'll go into this a little bit more depth later, is that they don't take into account, well, what scenario you're playing, what are the goals of it, how far you are away from your opponent, what terrain's on the board. They don't take any of this into account. They're a fixed value. They don't vary based on the scenario. And this is where scenarios have a fixed force. And oftentimes you have very specific terrain, very specific rules, very specific objectives where one one model might be more or less valuable. So the balance changes. Ideally, we want a scenario that creates a really interesting game most of the time. Now, that might mean that the good wins it most of the time because that follows a story, or evil wins it most of the time, but as long as it creates an interesting story, that's okay. So I often talk about in scenario spotlights balancing a scenario, and what I mean by that is making the scenario as interesting for as long as possible and give both players a chance to win the scenario or at least at least put their best foot forward on it. I don't think we can ever get to 100% balance, and I don't think that's necessarily what people are aiming for either. I don't. I think people are kidding themselves. They think everything's going to be 100% balance. There's always going to be discrepancies. Now, we'll talk about points. So every every model in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit strategy battle game has been allocated the points. For a lot of them, these points have stayed the same, even though rules have changed. Through the latest edition, we've had monsters changing quite a bit. We've had 
basic infantry changing with hand weapons. It changes to hand weapons. And the points have remained static for most models. So we do have some Hobbit stats where the, the points are probably oftentimes more accurate. But you've got specific models, and I'm going to mention some of them here, that have become quite under undercosted, which means that their, their value in-game is most of the time greater than their points. So some of the examples I'll, I'll mention here, and I, I, people can debate them if they want, but I don't think there's much argument. Shelob has improved throughout each edition. She started off being able to be beaten by Frodo and Sam because she had a rule where if she took a wound, she had a courage test. If she failed the courage test, she fled the board. Her six wounds were irrelevant. She only had the courage four, I believe, so there's a good chance of failing that. That would happen quite a bit. Then she had a big change where basically you could use will for courage tests. And she had six will. That was designed to stop her getting hit by magic spells. So all of a sudden you've got a model that's going to pass its first two courage tests or first one courage test guaranteed. And that's a huge change. So that means that the hobbits from the scenario have to do an extra wound to her. So a really nice change there. Then she got some other changes where she got the monstrous attacks. So she can basically be a monster now. She can barge, she can hurl, she can do all kinds of great things and has improved there. There might have been some other changes I haven't noticed, but the only real disadvantage she's got is that other people can strike against her and, and find a way to go against her fight seven. She doesn't have the ability to do that because she's got no might, but she is a fantastic model now. The other advantage she got, which I didn't mention before, is now courage tests, You only if you pass one of one type, you pass the rest for the turn. So she took three wounds in a turn. You used to have to take three courage tests, and there's a good chance you'll fail that. Now you take one, use your will to pass it, and you've passed for the rest of the turn, so all the rest are irrelevant. So she's become a really, really powerful model, and she hasn't changed points at all through any edition, so she's still stuck at the 90 points. So that's an example of a model that's now become undercosted. Her original design was one thing, and she was designed to have a real weakness, and that weakness is gone, and now she's gained some more strengths. Another one is Urkenbrand, who stayed the same. It was a pretty good model before, where the horn was basically a, a one-turn banner for the whole battlefield. That's fantastic rule. Now they've changed it to bring in a line of horns, and I thought, well, this is Erkenbrand's horn, so it must be even better than a normal horn. Let's make it two-plus courage. So you've got it on a hero instead of a warrior. So one of the disadvantages of horns is most of the time they're on a warrior, which can be picked off pretty easily and not be passed. But you've suddenly put a horn on a hero, which is which is great. That's powerful. But you've put two-plus courage, which is massive. Two to the courage... The Courage rules use uh, the 2d6 of rolls, so 2 plus is actually exponentially better rather than just linearly better. So that actually is a fantastic increase there. And his points hasn't changed the same. He's still dirt cheap. So he's another one of those ones that I'll say is undercosted. Does this mean they can't be beaten? No. You can still beat these models. Urkenbrand, just go punch him in the face until he dies. Shelob, either ignore her, bog her down with one model, charge her if you have to, make sure she doesn't get any spear supports. That's another advantage she's got. She can be spear supported now. And, and, Maybe even go in with some really powerful piercing heroes and, and go strike up and just kill her outright. There are ways to get rid of these models. They're not all powerful. They're not guaranteed to win your games. But they are undercosted. And most gamers can spot these things pretty easily. Even beginner gamers can look at it and go, Oh, this Moranan Orc looks pretty good compared to this Gundabad Orc. Why would I ever take the Gundabad Orc? And this is the question you get when you talk about balance. And people say, why would I ever take it? The game's designed for me to take this model. This model's better. The game designers want me to take this model, which I'm not so sure that's their design. I think I, th- I think it'd be the opposite, to be honest. But you get this idea, and you see these in forces. You see the forces where you've got a small contingent of Moria armed with a small contingent of, of Mordor, with a small contingent of Haradrim, with a small contingent of Easterlings, and they've taken 
the best of each list, supposedly, or the most undercosted for each list. Or you get these strange themes where Shelob's suddenly helping out in Harrod and, and, or the Goblin King's going travelled. And, and once again, this is fine for people to take. And some people really enjoy this. And for some people, their hobby is to go and find these inconsistencies in costs and, and, and really take advantage of that. And that's fine as well. I'm not going to put any judgment call on it. It's not what I do most of the time. Uh, I've probably done it a few times in tournaments where I've taken a list and something I've liked and said, well, this model looks better than this model. I'll take this model. And that's that's fine as well. So once again, no judgment call on that. But there's also over-costed models. And these are the models where people look and go, why would you ever take that? And, and a lot of times it's compared with heroes. So you get, say, comparing a Captain of Gondor on foot with S.H.I.E.L.D. to Kyrion, something like that, where Kyrion gets an extra point of mind. Or there's a lot of all captains of the same idea where you look and go, why would you take the generic one? People have been saying a lot about ring wraiths lately. There's a lot of talk about ring wraiths, and, and Kylie put out a really nice tactica on our Facebook page, so there's been a lot of discussion there. And the idea of ring wraiths is people most most of the people take the named ring wraiths because you get an extra rule for a, for a small amount of extra points, and the idea that that's much better value and, and they're, they're under-costed compared to the others, not always the case, to be honest. Sometimes you get a rule that's useless. But once again, people trying to to find these undercosted models and, and ignore these overcosted models and their forces and that's okay. But a game that has a lot of undercosted models and, and a lot of overcosted models is not particularly balanced. Now we're lucky in in this game where the game choices you make are always more important than the models you take. So the the way the game's designed with things like might and things like priority and the initiative and, and the way traps work and the way hand weapons work and all the choices that you get the, the way you use your models is always better. So sometimes you could take a force that looks like it's it's not particularly good and do really well with it. Um, my most recent example is the Grim Hammers, which are, are widely considered overcosted, And that's because people compare them directly to the Khazad Guard, who, look, to be honest, look better. Bodyguards are fantastic rule. The Strength 4 is fantastic. The Defense 7 compared to Defense 6 is fantastic. But they're forgetting that the Grim Hammers have throwing weapons, which the Khazad Guards don't. That's pretty much the only advantage of the Grim Hammers. The two-handed weapons is okay, but you don't use it a whole lot. But the throwing weapons means you can play them in an entirely different way. Now, if you've only got a couple of them, it's it's useless. You, you hit, you get the occasional kill, not good. But when you suddenly take 30 of them, 30 throwing weapons can, can start doing some damage. It means you can knock out horses. It means you can take off a couple guys before you get into combat. It means you don't have to enter combat. You've got more tactical options. This is an example of, a, I guess, an overcosted model where you have a lot of them, meaning your forces are even more overcosted, but it makes the game and the play even better. So sometimes these points don't rate what you do with them. It's also a very different one. If, you, if you're taking dwarves, they're probably all overcosted if you have to move very, very far, whereas flyers are probably undercosted if that's the case. If you're playing in a lot of dense forest, cavalry is probably overcosted. If you're. The, there's all kinds of terrain that, that changes it, um, all kinds of scenario deployment. So there's lots of options there. So the idea of balance is is a complex one. It really is. Because the points values, you get a static points value, which does not represent the character at all times. And you'll find that where sometimes you'll, you'll design an army and it's really great and you'll play a scenario that doesn't work particularly well and suddenly you feel like you're up against it. I can't win this scenario. It doesn't work for me. And that's often because... The points don't quick, correctly reflect how your army would do in such a scenario. Now, 
I want to talk about a game with no points. So, so the big thing about the the release of the Warhammer is that there's no points provided. And for someone like me, I look at this and go, "Well, that's fantastic. I, I really, really like that." For most people, the response—well, I don't know if it's most. There's been a lot of people responded with, "Oh my god, what am I going to do?" Because it's taken away the part of the hobby that they enjoy the most, which is designing these lists where they're trying to maximize efficiency. They're trying to find the undercosted models. They're trying to find models that work well with each other to create extra value. And they're trying to use that to beat their opponent. And, and that's where they get joy out of. So they can winning the game through that way is the way they want to win. And that's fine as well. And this is taking that away from them because if there's no points, they can't find the optimal value model. There's ways to win, of course, but they... They can't hide behind those points, I guess. They can't use those points to their advantage. They can't generate that. And that's that's tough if that's the way you wanted to play the game and suddenly this has been happening. That would be that would be pretty hard to take. But for someone like me, I often ignore points altogether. We write a lot of scenarios and I, I, I write a lot of scenarios where I pick up models I've been painting lately. I think of a story. And then the idea is to make a scenario where that story is told. So I think one of the scenario spotlights I did was where I, I highlighted the Merkwood Elf Captains, which it obviously they're considered a little bit overcosted compared to Tariel and Thrain the Broken, who's a good model, and Bayorn and some Gundabad Orcs and, and really showed them off in their my Dol Goldor scenario, which I can't remember what I exactly called it, but you can look that up. And I designed the scenario about showing off these models. So they all had to do certain things. The Merkwood Elves are incredibly powerful. They they're great models. They're 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 good value. But the way I designed the scenario is that shooting is not particularly good value for them. So suddenly those models are not worth as much as they are in the books. And and you'll see that as the game plays out. And putting things in tough situations. Bayon was probably better than in the books because I gave some special rules about really showing off Bayon. But he starts frozen, so he can't move in the game. Thrain is an incredibly cheap model in the game, but he is a liability in this one because you can lose some of your victory conditions with it. And he's, he's hard to control. So there's some options there that we put in there. So I suggest... For for people who want to write scenarios without points, and this is, I think, a very rewarding thing, talk to your opponent or design it yourself. Do, do the whole job yourself. Choose a story you want to tell. What do you want to do? Do you want to show off how many heroic combats Elendil can do in a game, in a Numenor battle? So set up your scenario around that and make sure that the victory conditions involved doing those heroic combats in order to win the game. And don't worry about the points. So, so make sure that Alindel has to do that. Make sure that he has to cover a large area of his heroic combats. Make sure there's models that he can legitimately win heroic combats with. So it might mean your orc force doesn't have a huge amount of spears. Because if he's up against four attacks every time, he might lose a fair bit. So design your scenarios around that. And don't be afraid to try things out. And tell your opponent. Talk to them about this. A lot of war games are talking about this idea of a chat before. And we can't just have a pickup game. And we need to chat with the opponent. Should we doing this anyway? Like... Oftentimes when I'm playing and someone asks to play a points match games, and I do play this, I, I rubbish points match games a lot, but I do. I'll often say, what do we want out of it? Do you want it to look really good? Okay, good. What force are you taking? Don't tell me what's in your army. Just say you're taking Mordor. Okay, I'll take something that's played against Mordor. We'll play in Mordor. We'll play in Gondor, and we'll design around that. And I'm happy to design an army, and it might not be optimal, but design one that kits the theme, because that's what I enjoy. Sometimes I'll say, are you going to play a powerful list, or are you going to play a themed list? And they don't have to be directly opposite, but it's a good way of just opening up dialogue saying, no, I'll play a theme list. I'm going to take some undercosted things and make a really cool story, and then I can do that as well. Or if you're going to play a powerful list, I've got to bring something that's at least going to compete, or else we're both going to have a terrible game, if, if that's the case. Now, the last thing I want to talk about in my concerning balance is this idea of composition. 
So a lot of tournaments in particular have composition systems. And, and I was involved in, in making one of the very early compositions for, for Lord of the Rings, where we basically, for the old legions of Middle-earth, rewarded people for taking smaller armies and, and less might and things that, that were generally considered quite good. Now it's it's evolved quite a bit, and, and it's, I think it's outdated. And I've, I've changed my opinion on composition altogether. This is where you basically, the, the tournament organizer puts their own rules on army selection. And this could be because of the scenarios they design. It could be for whatever reason. They could change the points of models. They could tell you you're only allowed to take one of a certain type of model. They could say, if you take this certain type of model, we're going to punish you. Or if you take this model, we're going to reward you. And this encourages people to take more balanced forces. Because as a tournament organizer, your aim is for everyone to come with a balanced force because you want the tournament to be relatively even. Last thing you want is people to be given up at the start of it. So we have a composition system and and we put those in there. So some of them are are very, very strict and and basically say things like no Tom Bombadil, no Alfred, no this. Or maybe if you take Alfred, we're going to take one point off you every game, no matter what. So if you need to take him, by all means, because this is for a while has been considered a very strong character. I've been, been... trying to, to flag a, a no-composition system at the moment. We did that for Masters. I think the scenarios themselves should have enough variety where they dictate your army and give everything a choice. I think the composition, the problem I've had with it and with experience is that all it does is move the goalposts. There's always something that's going to be under-costed. There's always something that's going to be over-costed. You're just setting up a different set of goals. You're setting up a different, different army to be ahead. And that's not necessarily what you want to do. And these points aren't perfect. They're not going to be perfect. They're not ever going to be perfect. Putting your own system on them, you might make them better. You might. Straight out, it might be fantastically better, but you're still not going to do it 100%. We we, we don't have the time or all the, the foresight. With There's way too many variables in, in the game to take care of that. The the amount of terrain, the scenarios, the, the ability of the players, all that sort of stuff is hard for it. So, I've been been really championing the the no composition at the moment just because you want to give people the option to take the models they want. The the best thing about a tournament is someone can design a list that they want to design. They can paint the models they want to paint. They can play the games they want to play. The tournament organizer sets the rules. If you want to join the tournament, this is what's going to happen. People are going to be competitive. That's what they do at a tournament. You know that going in. You can't complain afterwards and say, oh, people were competitive and, and... took that, that's fine. If the tournament organizer says, we really encourage you to take themed lists, that's what we want, then you can maybe say, well, this person's not taking it. But it's up to the tournament organizer to set that. I think the balance is never going to be 100%. We're very lucky in, in our game where it's been a balanced game for a long time as much as it can be because there's not a huge variation in models and the, what you do with the models is always greater than, than their value. So... That's my thoughts on balance, and they've been a bit rambly and a bit all over the place, and hopefully you got something out of it, and hopefully I didn't offend anyone with the conversation. Maybe got you thinking about it, but I guess to summarize, points matches are a good starting point. They won't always be balanced. If you and your friend are playing, and you always beat them, and you're playing 800 points, very simple thing to do is you take 700 points, they take 800, see what you can do. Shows that you're a pretty good player if you can beat them with 700 points, and it might make a fun game for them as well, make them more likely to come back. Write your own scenarios. If you really want to tell the story of the Barrow Whites attacking hobbits in the old forest, write a scenario for it. I know there's a really good one, but write your own. Sometimes the the best stories don't work in points match games or they take a lot of skill where they can't do that. So design your own scenarios for it. 
And a lot of the scenarios which involve things like Fellowship and Thorin's company, they've got way more points for the good side because they're at a little bit of a disadvantage in what they have to do. And, and oftentimes they have an auto-lose condition where if you lose Bilbo or Frodo, game over. So watch out for that sort of stuff as well and, and enjoy it. And don't get too stressed about the balance for it and don't get too obsessed with with making the best list and the finally crafted list because take a step back and look at it and say, what am I really proving? Am I proving that I'm the best player? Am I? Is this the best format to prove that I'm I'm the best player? Like I don't I don't actually think it is. I think we're playing a game with dice. We're playing that. You can you can know who's a good player. You know who can cope with that. And people will readily admit if they are or not. But what we want to do is have a fun experience in Middle Earth, and that's that's important no matter who we are. So so watch out for that, and just watch your opponent. And look, if your opponent enjoys you making the most finely crafted list you can, do it, and that's fine. That that's fine as well. There's no no value judgment there, and, and my own opinions are my own opinions, and who knows, in a year's time, I might be totally different. I might be sitting here saying, make the, the best list you can and go go attack people at the maximum strength all the time, and that's the way to play. And, and I have been through stages of that where I think that that's, that's what I've enjoyed. So it changes it up, but at the moment in my gaming, play some scenarios, write your own scenarios, modify scenarios, modify points levels if you have to, experiment, have some fun with the game. It's a great game, and... and Hopefully that keeps your interest for a lot longer. You've asked for it. We are now going to provide it Hobbying in Hobbiton, where we talk about all kinds of conversion, modeling, sculpting, painting, whatever we feel like about the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit game, how we make our models. Now, I know this is an audio podcast, but people seem to like to listen to, to what we talk about here. So we're going to start off. Once again, I have Danny with me. Hello. And I've, we're going to talk about conversions that we did for the Masters tournament. So we both took our armies, as you know. Danny took an Isengard Scout Force, and I took an Osgiliath Veteran Force. So both of these required a lot of conversions, although I think Danny's didn't necessarily have to. But we'll go through his first. Danny, you had some Urukai Captains you converted, didn't you? Um, yes, my Isengard Scout Army had nine heroes, so I had to convert several Captains because there's only four named heroes for Isengard Scouts, plus Grishnak I took. So I had to convert up a few of the other ones. And I also converted a few Malher and Vraskru just because I don't own the models. Okay. So some of them were converted just for variety. Some of them converted because you don't own the original models. And some of them it's hard to get now. I think some of them are unavailable. Is that right? I think they were, they were all still available last time I checked. Okay. But I didn't want to buy another Ugluk to get the Vraskru. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what could you do with a spare Ugluk? So how did you make your captains? I had a spare Ugluk. Oh, there okay. we go. So um, I had... Five converted captains for this tournament. I started w- with just a captain with a Urukai scout captain, so no armor, no heavy armor, with the two-handed axe. So I um, took inspiration from one of Jeremy's old conversions he'd done ages ago. Jeremy had got an Ugluk model and just given him the Dunlending Chieftain's two-handed axe. That's correct, yes. But I didn't have a spare Dunlending Chieftain, so I just used a bit of bit of brass rod and green soft the axe head and then green stuff the shaft to do that but then to differentiate him a bit more from Ugluk I gave him a head swap and switched his left hand around just with the normal Urukai Scout's helmet and arm 
just to make it look a bit different. Okay, so you got the head from the Urukai Scout plastic models, is that right? Yes. And the arm as well? Yes. Both now, arms. Both arms. Okay, brilliant. Now the axe, you say green stuff the axe head. Did you do it flat and then sculpt it, then put the axe on, or did you put it on the model and sculpt on the model? So I had, I, to make the axe head, I got a spare Dunlending model, just a Dunlending with 200 axe, and compare, just for comparison, I pressed a bit of green stuff flat and cut it out with a knife just to shape, let it dry for 20 minutes or something. Then I glued it to the bit of brass rod that I was using as a handle. And okay, then green so stuff. That's a good way of doing it. So roll it flat and then basically cut it out. That's that's how some people do cloaks as well, where mm-hmm. you just get it flat, wait till it's almost dry, then put it on and then sculpt it. Did you then go back and file it down at all or did you just leave it like that? I sort of knifed it down, so whittled it down a bit. Yeah, roughed it up a bit yeah. and made it, made it with a made sharp it edge? Sharper. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Look, it looked really good. I didn't even notice that's how you did that. So that's that's impressive. Uh, the next one. Okay. So the next Yurikai captain I had has a two-handed axe and a bow, namely because I wanted to use alerts as the base, and that's and the alerts model already had a bow, and it was just way too much work to take it off. So is this one of the alerts firing the bow, or is this the alerts with the shield oh. in the air? The alerts with the, um, holding this, holding sword and shield yep. with the bow okay. on his back. Yep. So that was too much work to remove. So pretty much I did a head swap for a Yurikai Scout with helmet, Scout helmet, just because I have that alerts model already in the army. I gave him a different arm, mm-hmm. no, two different arms, and I made the axe the same way as I made the previous okay, two-handed so axe. Okay, so pretty much the same kind of conversion. When you do a head swap, do you use clippers to chop the head off, or do you saw them off? I used or? a bone saw. Bone saw, okay, yeah, off. that's a good way that's of doing it. a real pain in the neck, because yeah. you're trying to not to remove the rest of the detail, and their arms are often in the way, so... Yeah, I've, I've got to the point of that where I don't actually mind too much. I'll, re- I'll remove it as close as possible... If I want to save the head, I'll remove a bit more of the shoulders off. If I want to save the shoulders, I'll remove a bit more of the head and then file it down and then re-sculpt if I have to. But it's a really good technique, isn't it? It makes so much mm-hmm. difference. Yeah. I I think I end up reusing one of the heads on my Moher model, Moher model. Oh, okay, good. So, so, yeah. so, yeah, the head swaps literally swapping your head. So, you grab a conversion and... I think that's a bit of a precursor to what I did as well. I did a lot of that as well, where you end up with a head and go, this will look great on this model, and then you chop off a head and you end up with another head and and so on. Okay, next one. Okay, the next captain I converted was a Yurikai captain with shield. Yep. I What hand weapon did he have? Sword? Just a sword. Yep. I basically got the Yurikai captain with bare head and shield model, and I sculpted some more leather on him, so to make his armor not heavy armor, just normal armor. Oh, so straight out of the Isengard Siege ones and then um, re-sculpted the armor. Yeah, so just a normal Yokai Captain. Yeah, the one. yeah. No, I yeah. didn't expect that. So that's the bare head with the sword in the air yes. and the shield down beside him. Oh, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, in hindsight, I shouldn't have tried to sculpt the armor, sculpt the jacket from scratch. I was thinking of instant molding it just from Ugluk's yep. back. That would have resulted in a more crisp and uh, easier job all round. However, I couldn't be bothered waiting the day for the instant mould and the green stuff to set. So, that was me being a bit impatient, creating more work for myself. Yeah, that, that's a, a good point. I, and I think we've talked about instant mould before, but basically it's it's a product that, search for instant mould or instant mould. We get ours from, there's a place in Australia called The Combat Company, which has a lot of modelling supplies. Uh, they don't sell a lot of Lord of the Rings or Hobbit, but they ha- they are great for modelling supplies and they, they've got their own brand of it. I think it's uh, Modifex or M M O D I F X, 
and they they supply the, that. You can also get it from lots of other companies as well. And basically, you just boil it. It becomes, becomes soft. You you push it. You set up a mold. Wait for it to dry. Put it in the freezer if you want it to go quickly. Then you've got a mold, um, and then you just press your green stuff in or whatever other molding. I've actually been pressing um, some putty I got from Bunnings, which is a local hardware store, in for statues and things. And I've also been putting plaster in mine as well for terrain, and it actually works really well. It's very flexible stuff. But yeah, you have to wait a while. It's not instant, mm-hmm. even though it's called instant mold. The mold's instant. The green stuff's not. The Urukai chest, though, I think that would be a good thing to start sculpting with, though, because the lines are pretty clean. They're not too difficult. You could do it through layering. I think it's a it's a really good choice for a beginner sculptor to do. Yes, I think I think it would be. You'd have to be very patient, though, because you'd have to only sculpt a small amount at a time. I think that's the whole idea with sculpting anyway. But I agree. that yeah. That is sculpting. You have to be patient. Mm-hmm. As soon as you get quick... What you do is you get it all right and you get it perfect. You sculpt away, you're really happy, and then you look at it next time and there's a big fingerprint over all the detail you've just done. And it might not even be your own fingerprint. It's someone's fingerprint, but there's a fingerprint always there if you don't do it slowly. So often when I'm sculpting, I'll have four or five models going at once and you sculpt a little bit of one model and then you put it away for an hour or two and you do the next model and then go do something else because trying to do it all at once just doesn't work and it becomes relatively quick if you're doing a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, you had some named heroes as well. So that's your three captains, Maher and Vrasku, who you didn't get the original models. How did you make these? To start with Maher, I got a Yurikai Scout, just a plastic one, one of the ones without a shield, and I gave him the sword hand, the left sword hand from Ugluk that I'd saved from earlier. I had to repair it a tiny bit because I had to scrape it, you know, I'm cut it off. Yeah, that, that's thigh. often the case, isn't it? But yeah. So that's his left hand. Then I sculpted a cloak onto him just with green stuff i based it on a royal rohan guards cloak the idea being he had killed one and stolen the thing and that provided a bit of extra color in the army because i could do a bit of um gold freehand and other things and then to give him a nice top knot i gave him lurtz's head i think yeah which that's i'd say from earlier say from earlier so gave him the the characterful heads so they both got yeah that's a good idea so nice and easy. Rescue has a crossbow. Did you, how'd you do that? Back maybe five years ago when the Middle-Earth conversion kit came out in Battle Games in Middle-Earth, I got the crossbow in that, and then I added in it to a plastic Yurikai Scout back when Rescue's rules first came out. However, that was quite a dated model, and he was sort of running, and it didn't look quite captain-y. It looked like a normal Yurikai Scout with a crossbow. So I decided I'd pick a more upright and more imposing body for him so in came the third ugluk model i used in this army because i didn't want to do arm swaps or head swaps because they're a pain when cutting with the bone saw i just decided to cut him straight in half at the waist and i used ugluk's legs for this conversion i then got one of the yurikai scout bodies stuck that on top of that and did a bit of green stuffing to fit the conversion kits crossbow onto that Yep. Did you use the, the, the ammo pouch that comes with it as well? Or? Yes, yes, I use that to disguise a bit of a... Um, yeah, that's the way to do it, isn't yes. it? You always put it on the part that doesn't look so good. Yeah, it looked really good, and, and it looks the part. You also you used models specifically for banners, though. There's not so much conversions, but I'm interested. How did you do your two Urukai Scout banners? For Masters, I took Mary and Pippin, both being carried by Urukai as my banners, just because there's you know, two banners. And originally, my intention was to use as objective markers a Frodo, a Sam, and a Dying Boromir. I didn't end up having time to do that, but that the idea was that there's a bit of theme there. 
Yeah, no, I really like that. It was, it's a good use for those models because they are such fantastic models and, and they're some of my favourites in the range, to be honest. They just work. And to be able to use them in theme your force and join it all together, it looks fantastic. So it really worked as a force. And those conversions just, just were great. Lots of different captains. <laughs> I've previously converted up a Rohan banner for my Eurokai Scout Army, just using a bit of brass weld and just rolling out some green stuff, cutting it, letting it to dry a bit and sticking it on. And... So that's what I'd have done if I took a third banner for that army. Yep, so pretty much the same as your axe technique, but then you can just maybe as it's drying, fold a little bit, wrap it around a bit of rod or something to give it a bit of bit of flow like the air's going to it. Thanks for that, Danny. Okay, I think it's my turn. You're going to ask me some questions. Okay, so you've taken Osgiliath veterans in your army and you've taken about, you took about 15 of them or something? Yeah, there's quite a lot. It would have been probably a little bit more than that, okay. probably about 20. So why did you choose to convert these models and not just use the perfectly good three poses available? Uh, the perfectly good three poses are perfectly fine, but once you get a lot of them, there's only so many times you can use the, the same pose. Unfortunately, the, the guy with the sword and the shield is in a very open pose, so he's very distinctive, and he doesn't look particularly natural. He's very much coming at the, the shoot me, I'm, I'm not defending myself pose. And I wanted some variation and to, to bring it in. I also wanted some to match with Faramir a bit, like they're a bit more ranger-like. And the ones that went for Boromir were a bit more Osgiliath warriors with a bit of damage to their armor and things. So I basically did two types of them, and I've got them in front of you, Danny. They're split up into groups, so choose a group, and I'll explain how I did it. Let's start with the ones that are the most simple ones. They, they look like normal Minas Tirith warriors with a bit of we- weapon and head swaps. What do you do with them? Okay, so one of them I've taken ahead from uh, the, the same conversion kit that you had, I believe. So there's a head on that one. So I chopped off his helmet, put on a head. So I've taken the Plastic Warriors of Minas Tirith. I've basically kept the sword and the shield as normal. One of them's got an axe, and it's a dirty, big, disgusting-looking axe. I got this from a pack of orc weapons from Thunderbolt Mountains. I think it's their 30mm fantasy range, which is actually 28. It works perfectly well great weapons and you can use them for say corsair reavers and things or orc warriors but i've got an axe on one of them i've sculpted a lot of like sashes and pouches and things and these are just hand sculpted so what i did was rolled up a ball of green stuff if i was making like a pouch put in the rough shape and then use my sculpting tool to to push it around and make it look like a like a, a bedroll or a pouch for ammunition or food or whatever one of them's actually got a pouch uh it's from a world war ii warrior so i some plastic i think it's from bolt action took a pouch from that and put it straight on. And yeah, that's that's very simple conversions, but they've just got enough to look like a veteran. The, the main thing is you've got to make them look like a veteran from all angles. So the guy with the bare head, perfect. He always does. The one with the Minas Tirith helmet, he's got his axe in such a prominent position where you can't help but see it. And he's also got his sash on most positions as well. So you can easily tell he's a veteran. Okay. And working on from that, you can... There are two more warriors that are very similar, but they've got cloaks added to to them as well. What have you done there? So these ones to go with Faramir, I've got some cloaks from uh, Victoria Miniatures. They have some cloaks designed for Warhammer 40,000 Imperial Guardsmen, and I bought quite a bit of these, and I really love them because, one, you can get the flowing cloak, cloaks quite easily with a bit of trimming, and two, I'm not particularly great at doing cloaks, and it ends up being a lot of work, so having them already done in resin is great for me. So the first one I've got, same same process, Minister of Warrior, extra pouches, extra bits of stuff on his shield, a head from the conversion kit, an axe from Thunderbolt Mountain, and then a cape from Victoria Miniatures. So simple conversion there, but it looks great. He's probably my best one. And then I've got another one that I've taken a head from the Rangers of Gondor. So I chopped his head off, so he's got a hood and a mask. 
So head swap there. He's got some pouches as well and the cape. So it looks like he's got a ranger hood, a ranger cape. I had to, to remove the hood from the Victorian because you can't have two hoods. Well, I guess you could, but it looks stupid. So he's wearing his hood and his mask. So he ties him really well into rangers. You can definitely tell he's a veteran. So on the back, he's got a cloak. On the front, he's wearing Ministerius, but he's got the head all done up. Then we can see what appears to be a few Ministerius Siege Engine crew that you've converted into veterans. You are right. Well spotted. I've got a Siege Engine crew now. I don't know if this has ended up being cannibalized from another crew, but I do plan to make like a Numenorian crew for one of my Siege Engines. I've got quite a few, and I've picked up some spares along the way. So this is basically the crew from a trebuchet. So you've got a captain. I believe he's from the trebuchet. He might be from the bolt, uh, bolt thrower. I'm not entirely sure there. His conversion, he looks great. He's got one hand pointing. I've put a shield on his back because I've given most of my, well, all the warriors without bows shields because it's one of the advantages you have while skilled veterans is you can give them shields. He's got a white sash on him, so he really stands out. He's got a pouch sculpted on, and he's pretty similar to the actual model. He's just got a, a bandage on him and, and really looks apart. He's one of my favorites as well. I really like this one. It turned out well, and the sash is what really, you could tell he's a veteran. So uh, from the front, that, from the back, having the shield, means he doesn't necessarily look like a, a veteran crew. Then the next one, so this is one of the ones doing the, the spirit fingers with his arms to the side. He's got another Thunderbolt Mountain Axe, a different one this time, and he's got a shield on his other hand and then just a little bit of cloth on the shield. So super simple conversion. Although for this one, I actually converted a face mask on, so I don't know if you can see it there, Danny. But basically, I put a, um, like, you know, the the breathing masks, the whatever they are, on top of it, sculpted it, and then painted a slightly different color. So it looks like he's got a mask underneath his his helmet. Sort of like what the guards of the Fountain Court have, that bit of cloth. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. But yeah, just for something different. It's very subtle, but I quite like it. So it looks the part. And then my last one is a Spearman's. He's got a shield on the back as well. He's the Spirit Finger guys. I've given him a rock in one hand, so he's going to throw a rock at someone. He doesn't have the throw stone rules, but too bad. He's got a Ministerial Spear in the other hand, and he's holding it out. And I scraped off his armor on one side, so cut it right down, then re-sculpted it. So basically, you could tell he's lost a bit of armor. It's been damaged. It's been chopped off, and he's just pulled it off and left it there. And that way, you can tell he's straight away a veteran rather than a warrior. And now we get to the more sort of interesting conversions. We have two Rangers of Gondor. Yeah, these ones are actually simple as well. They're basically Rangers of Gondor with spear. So they're from the plastic Rangers of Middle-earth kit, I think it is, because Ranger of Honor as well. One has a Citadel Guard head, and one has a Warrior of Minas Tirith head, which are quite different scales, so they look quite different. They've both got shields. One's got it on the back. One's got it in his arm. And I don't think I made any other changes to that. The, the models are, are pretty much standard there. And they, they look quite good. They don't look like rangers because they've got the helmets and the shields. But they definitely look like a veteran. they still got leather armor. They painted to match the warriors in my army. It's possible you could confuse people for as warriors of Athelion or something. But in Osgiliath veteran army, yeah, they're quite clear. Actually, you've, you've got me there. I actually could, would wanted them to do double duty like they could definitely be warriors of Athelion as well i think that look fantastic so that that's an option if i'm not going faramir heavy ranger armies to use them as warriors of Athelion with the ranger armor and the helmets and they're one that i'll probably do some more and have them very obvious as, as that troop type i think combining them when you stand them next to kyrian who i'd use as the kyrian yes kyrian definitely who i'd use as the base for warriors of Athelion. they they'd look quite good maybe with a bit of chainmail added and combined with Possibly the Black Root Val Archer Command would also suit. Oh, that's I've got to spare one of those. That's a great idea. I might put those in as well. Yes. Oh, you're a genius, Danny. I knew I had you on for a reason.
now this fellow that you've got now looks like a warrior of Numenor. He does. I stole this idea from our, our Facebook page. Andrew Lemaire had these as his affiliate guard. Basically, it's it's the simplest conversion, but it's so fantastic. It's a warrior of Numenor. Chop off the wrist, put on a Minas Tirith guy's spear. Chop off the head, put on a Minas Tirith guy's head. Chop off the shield, put on a Minas Tirith guy's shield. And then all I've done for sculpting is actually join the cloth. So the Minas Tiriths have a split down their cloth. Sorry, Numenor has a split down their cloth and it's in two halves. I've joined it together a bit more like the Rangers one. So it's one part. And I've painted it into some like browns and greens. and But highlighted the armor as Minas Tirith armor. So it... Looks like it could be a warrior Minas Tirith. And I think I will do a bunch of these and make them Athelian Guard because they do stand out quite well. And I, I like the model. It just works so well. So it's a great use of the old plastic Numenorians. Okay, and last up we have what appears to be a warrior of Rohan with axe with a head swap, which is probably from the Citadel Guard or which shield and armor. So how do you do that? The armor, mostly. He's got Minas Tirith armor. This guy was the most complex out of a lot of them. Basically, I gutted him. I took out the middle of the Rohan guy. He's He's got his still Rohan axe. He's got a different shield. He got a different head. But I, I got my knife and dug out the middle of his armor. And then I shaved off the armor of a warrior of Minas Tirith and just glued it on. And then green stuffed the gaps. So it's actually the two of them put together. And I've done this kind of conversion before for my Watchers of Akana, where I've done a lot and I've converted things like Rohan. And basically, I often get the model where I like the pose and the cloak and then just got the armor and re-sculpt it. He's in a very nice pose, and, and this is this one turned out really well. And once again, I might do some more with Rohan. He's got the combination of armor that works really well, and the axe, which is, is good in-game, but also good to differentiate them, because no other warriors of Minas Tirith have the axes. Finally, we have what could be argued to be one of the centerpieces of your army. Yeah, it is definitely one of the centerpieces, the other being the Boromir, my Faramir. And I think I talked about this briefly, but I'll go into a little bit more detail about the process and, and my process for it. The Faramir, I really love the metal Faramir model, the Ranger model. I think I like it better than the armored Faramir just because it is Faramir. That's that's how Faramir was in the books. He was a Ranger most of the time, and and I really wanted to take him as a Ranger. So I went for the options of taking him with bow, lance, and horse because I thought he's a Ranger, he's on the move, and I thought it just would look fantastic as a conversion. This one I had to think about a while. I usually choose a horse with the pose that I like. So I go through my collection and look through it. I've got a lot of options. And one of them the, I could have done was just take a generic warrior of Minas Tirith, a uh, knight of Minas Tirith horse. But I decided to cheat a little bit and go for Boromir of Gondor's horse because it has a cloak built in already. It has the armor and the the equipment at the bottom would look okay for Faramir. It's slightly different, but I don't think that's noticeable. And it's in a really nice pose for what he's doing. So the horse is actually quite low to the ground and on the move. So the Faramir model, the metal Faramir model, I decided to use the metal one because I I could have press molded it, but press molding loses a little bit of the detail. And I really wanted this character model. And I had a spare one from the Battle Games in Middle Earth magazine. So I first thing I did was get the Boromir horse, chop the horse's head off. The reason I did this because I wanted the warrior of Minas Tirith, Knight of Minas Tirith's horse's head to get the armor. And then I chopped the Boromir top off and then chopped Faramir in half and stuck them together. Now, the nice thing about this is that I had two cloaks that were incomplete, but I could join them to make one cloak, and I find joining cloaks so much easier than sculpting my own, so it looks really natural. So that's my own cheat there. I'm not the best sculptor in the world, so I do little things like that to try and make sure I can cover the things that I can't do well and show off the things that I can do well. 
And what I can do well, the quiver and the bow, I wanted that to look really fantastic. So I actually press molded the quiver from the original Farrowy model because, of course, I lost it in transition when I changed that. And I got a bow from a, I'm not sure if this is from a Warrior Minas Tirith. I think it is, or it might be from a High Elf. I think it's from a Warrior Minas Tirith, but shaved the arm off and stuck it on the back. So the quiver and the bow look quite realistic. The lance works perfectly. It's from a Knight of Minas Tirith, and he's in a unique pose where he's actually pointing his lance out to the side. And I've got it so that it's basically where the joint of the horse and the cloak is sitting there. So it's really quite strong. So it's joined at two points, his arm and the warrior, because we all know how annoying it is to have the the spears and lances break off the models. So this is a fantastic model. I'm really proud of it. And once again, we'll put photos of all these models up on our Facebook page. So if you go to the Facebook Green Dragon page, you'll see pictures of these models. And we're both quite proud of them because we are both converters at heart, I think. And, and this is some good work. If anyone wants a less miniature intensive Faramir with the same kit, I previously made one for one tournament, which was based on a Warrior's Rohan. I re-sculpted the boots to make them look more like Faramir's boots. I extended the bow on the back and I gave him Faramir's head and a Knight of Minas Tirith arm and sculpted his chest a bit more. It's nowhere near as nice though. And I actually did consider that quite a bit. I looked at the Warriors of Rohan for a long time and I actually ended up chopping up a warrior, a rider of Rohan as well. But then halfway through, I decided to use the Boromir horse and the actual Faramir body because I was, I was going to go that option, press mold the head. But I just decided that I wanted it to be as close to Faramir as I could possibly make it. This option also has a lot more bulk on it because Riders of Rohan are quite small models. Yeah, and Boromir's horse himself is actually quite bulky. The the warrior looks right. You don't want those little tiny Rohan horses compared to... Like, I've got Knights of Minas Tirith in the army and their horses are quite big. So I thought that would have stood out. I could have just put a Rohan rider on a Knight of Minas Tirith horse as well. That would have worked fine. So there's lots of options there. And look, I might do that for some Ranger Captains. I might have... Captain of Gondor, you don't have to take heavy armor for them, do you? Is that an option? Maybe you do. I think you have to... They come with heavy armor. You could use King of Men. Oh, King of Men. Yeah, that's a good idea. The extra fight. Yeah, extra... Oh, that's good. Yeah, because Rangers have the extra fight. King of Men could have a bow. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. If not, who cares? That's a great idea. (laughs) We'll leave it there for the moment because we're going to talk about all possible conversions we can do. But hopefully these get your conversion ideas going. and, And look, have a go at these. None of these are really that hard. They're not our most labor-intensive conversions. It's no Halbroid Parade with Banner, and it just adds to our armies, and we're, we're very happy we've got these models. Welcome to the Entmoot, where we answer your questions after thinking about them for a very long time. Jeremy and Danny here, and I'll go back to talking normally. I've got a few key questions we got from our listeners in the past month. Thank you all so much for your questions. Keep them coming because we'll we'll do this. Look, we're going to cover some more than once, but I don't mind that anyway because some people, this might be their first podcast. It might be their only ones, and our, our answers will change over time, and that could be interesting to see back. So first of all, Harry Danilis has asked us a couple questions. His first one was, what's the most efficient method of learning the rules without playing through the scenario? So he knows us too well. He knows we're going to say, play through some scenarios. Efficient method of learning the new Hobbit rules. Danny. Well... Firstly, you'd read the rule book, wouldn't you? It's a good start, yeah. Or you'd get a really good player 
who wants a new opponent to teach you the rules. That's probably another one. I think you have to play games. You have mm-hmm. to be playing games straight out. What I recommend doing, and I'm going to be a bit more specific than you, Danny, here, is read a chapter of the book. Read one of the sections. So read your movement phase really well before your game. Don't worry about the rest of the stuff. Let the more experienced player or let someone else take you through that. And don't worry about rules change. If you miss them, who cares? But get that right. Read over it. Look for anything obvious. Read the FAQ that goes with it. Then your next couple games, read through the combat phase and just check things. Read through that. And then once you've done that, add things like the monster attack. So maybe don't play with monsters to start with. Play with just infantry and learn all the infantry-specific rules and then all the hero-specific rules and go through that. But actually regularly read through the rule book because... We've gone through, what, five editions now. So there's lots of rules that might have changed we haven't noticed yet. So so keep that up. But there's really no other way of learning them than actually using them. So play, play, play. Even if you don't want to play the Goblin Town scenarios. And Harry asks another good question here. Improving painting skills and choosing colors. So basically, he wants to know about choosing a color scheme for an army and getting the most out of his paint job for that. So... Danny, you can start us off. You're quite an established painter. Okay. Um, I have a special advantage when it comes to choosing colours on because I'm colourblind. As such, I am not quite sure what colours are meant to be or what colours actually work well together. So generally, I just grab whichever my favourite colour is to work with in terms of like pigment and application. I grab that one. I shade it down a bit with, say, a wash or, yep. say, Devil Mud or Agrax Earthshade or something, and I add a bit of, say, bleach bone or something to highlight up. So, in order to make sure all my colors work well together, I just grab the base color of which one I want and then shade it down and highlight up with just a light color and a dark color. Mm-hmm. And then, so what about if you have multiple colors on a on an, a unit? What I figure is I have no fashion sense, so why should Bard have any fashion sense? Like, he's poor, he's a smuggler, he'll just grab whatever happened to be earthy and, you know, cheap. Yeah, fair enough. So you go for the cheapest paint you can. That's a good idea. I like to go for one color that's really bright and brings it out. So I'll go for one feature color. So maybe a a red or a blue or a green. And then a lot of dull neutral colors usually. So a lot of browns and blacks and off-whites and things like that. And a similar idea of making them look poor, but they have the one feature color or two feature colors that go through that. I love your thought about hitting them with the wash. Because if you want to improve in an efficient way, what I recommend do is grab a solid base color, get it even as you can. So get on that, even if it takes you two layers, get that even on the area, then hit it with a wash. Then highlight it up with the original color first. So wash it, one of the inks, highlight with the original color, so go over and, and pick the raised areas, and then give it one more highlight with the same color mixed with an off-white. So a bleached bone or whatever that color is now, or a white or whatever, and then you get an efficient way of doing it. My next secret is black lining. Get a thin paintbrush, paint the areas where the two colors meet, two different colors meet, give them a thin black line between them. It actually doesn't matter if this line's actually reasonably thick. It will really set your model apart. So that's that's my quick, quick thoughts on painting and, and Danny's quick thoughts on painting. So that works really well. Danny, your models look fantastic. Colorblind, who cares about that? If you're getting the models like that, keep going. Keep going how you're doing it. Now, we have Ben Monroe says, what are your favorite scenarios? We've talked about this before, but this is probably my favorite question. So we're going to answer it again. Danny, go. Favorite scenarios. Okay. I really like pretty much most, pretty much all the scenarios from Scaring of the Shire. They're fun little ones. They don't take many models to play. So it's quite easy to paint up. And if you want to paint, you know, make Hobbit holes, well, Hobbit holes look good. So that's great. And there's, they're really easily identifiable. You can say, 
to people, this is, you know, this is when the Hobbits came back in the books. It wasn't in the movie, but that happened. I really like scenarios that are distinctive and people can remember and identify. So it's just someone walks in the room and goes, hey, what are you doing? Oh, that's Helm's Deep. I agree there. I've got some, I've mentioned some of mine before. I'm going to give a slightly different answer this time because my normal answer is things like Barrels Out of Bond or The Scouring of the Shire, Battle of Bywater or Helm's Deep. Because I've made boards for them, they look fantastic and they're fun scenarios. But I'm going to say anything where you get to play with a lot of ring wraiths. I think there's some fantastic ring wraith scenarios. There's some in the Fellowship uh, the Ring Journey book, which are great fun to play with. There's one in one of the Gondor books where where nine ring wraiths have to go through and, and get through, I think it's Minas Ithil or something. It's a fantastic scenario. There's one where there's about five wraiths in, I think it's one of the dwarf books, Kazadu maybe, where they have to go assassinate Dane, and that's a fantastically fun puzzle scenario. So I really like to play the all ring wraith scenarios. I think they're great fun, and, and I wouldn't mind playing some more of those. So that's my answer for that one. Then we've got a, probably a dual question. Tom Cole and Ian Robert both asked very, very similar questions. The favorite model, least favorite model, favorite hero, least favorite hero. So let's go through a model for whatever reason, Danny, that's your favorite and for whatever reason is your least favorite. And then I'll do the same. Let's try not to be too negative, but if people are asking us for our least favorite, there's going to be some negativity there. So I apologize in advance. Probably some of my favorite models are a lot of the Gandalf, the Grey po- miniatures. They're really quite nice they're great to paint because lots of clean lines he's a really characterful model he's quite quite good in game not super overpowered or anything but you know he's he's a fair model in game and he's just really distinctive and yeah quite recognizable quite you know you can start quoting Gandalf if that's what you want to do that's a good answer for favorite model I'll go for my favorite model now now this one it depends what day of the week you ask me really but I'm going for something that's really key to the range and I'm I'm a massive fan of the Witch King on Felbeast model from the, the Return of the King edition. I think it's just everything you want at Felbeast. The pose is fantastic. You've got dead Rohan on the base. You've got the Witch King looking imposing. The actual Felbeast design, I think, is great. So I, I would go for that model just for... It's the one model... Well, there's a lot of models, but it's one model that you look at it no matter what you're playing. People know you're playing Lord of the Rings. It's so recognizable and, and such a fantastic version of a Felbeast. Danny, least favorite model? Well, I... Could answer the normal, say, Rumil or a funny Arwen sculpt or something, but I'll probably say some of the old, like Gandalf the White, the one walking sort of from Heroes of the West. I think it's because I first got that model years ago, so I painted it extremely, extremely poorly because I was about 12 at the time. As such, I have bad connotations sort of with the paint jobs of that model, and I don't give it actual, you know, recognition as a Potentially decent sculpt. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and limit myself on this because there's quite a few models that I'm not the biggest fan of, and I, I won't be too negative about it. Mostly because it's the sculpting for whatever reason hasn't really worked, whether the scales off or they either don't match up with the rest of the range aesthetically or whatever. But I'm gonna go for the model that I think is a combination of not the most inspiring sculpt, but also looks like it's there's been an error when it was made, and that's gonna be the mouth of Sauron for me. He's the one model that you can, as you rotate him, if you had one of those 360-degree rotations now on the Games Workshop website, you'd spin him around, and you'd see, you'd get him to a point where you could see just his horse and not the model, then you'd spin him 90 degrees, and you could see just the rider and not the horse, 
and another 90 degrees and you've gone back to just the horse and not the rider. He is so thin. He is so thin. The model itself is pretty uninspiring and I really don't like Peter Jackson's vision of it either, to be honest. I think it's it's not great. But the model itself looks like they've like compressed the mold too much or damaged it because it's just paper thin. It's it's That's all I'm going to say about that. Mouth of Sauron. Let's finish on a positive note because I don't like finish on this negative note. Uh, what's your favorite in-game model, Danny? to play with, just for gaming point of view or story point of view, not, not look at the miniature, but someone, something that if you had a choice, you want to play a scenario, you want to play a game with a character, and what character are you choosing? Probably the Hobbit heroes. So, say, Sam. Sam. I really like playing with Sam, especially Sam on Pony. He's quite a powerful model, but not overpowered. They're just characterful, really enjoyable, quite decent sculpts mostly. And, yeah, it's... So hobbits are quite fun to play with, especially when allying him into other armies. I like the idea of doing that. I'm going to go for what I think is an easy choice. I'm going to go for Frodo Baggins because if you're playing Frodo, you're probably not playing him in a points match game. You're probably playing in this scenario with the Fellowship. And, and I think those are some of my most classic memories of the game where you've got the Fellowship making their way through Moria or making their way against spectral wargs or their journey hiding from the ring race. There's so many fantastic Frodo scenarios all the way up to Mount Doom that I'm going to pick Frodo. I love the ring mechanic. I love how it's it's such a gamble to put it on. It's such a an advantage to put it on, but also it it's, it's stuffs you up so many times and you want to pull it off. Plus you get to use, and I said it's not about the model, but you get to use the clear Frodo model as well when you put the ring on. So Frodo Baggins for me. This is a good time as any to say thank you for the so much feedback we've been getting from our listeners. It's been absolutely fantastic and it's really kept us going. So the sort of communication that people have had, it's given us ideas for episodes. If you want to do some more communication and let other people know about the podcast, please leave a review on something on iTunes if you use that or whatever app you use, SoundCloud or or any of the, the podcasting apps. If it's not on a podcasting app that you want it on, tell me about it. I'll put it on that. I've probably got most of them, I believe. So leave us some reviews. Keep giving us the emails. Keep giving us the, the feedback about the episodes, episode ideas, whatever you want. If you want me to read out your email, and I've got a lot of them lately, and I haven't read any out, just tell me at the start place, hey, please read out in the podcast, because I'm happy to do that. But I didn't know if some were private conversations and some were not. So I haven't read any of them out, but it's been absolutely fantastic. It's really given some life to the podcast. So thank you very much. And once a month, we'll have this this Entmoot. So please provide us some questions. Otherwise, we'll have to make our own, and, and that won't be as fun. Finally, we have our quick thoughts. Our topic today was suggested by Samuel Josiah Briggs. He's asked, what rule would you change in The Lord of the Rings or Hobbit if you had a choice? So, Danny, you have one minute. Ready, set, go. Well, I feel that the most important member of, well, the most important Hobbit is really, really underrated in the game, Fatty, our favorite five-point model in the game. But we consider he's an inc- he played an incredibly large part of the quest he organized some of the resistance back in the shire when sharky's rogues were attacking he 
alerted Hobbiton to the Ringwraiths being there. He's really, really important. And I reckon he should have a bit of a stat increase. We look at Forlong the Fat. He's fat, so he has an extra wound and an extra strength, I think. Strength, yeah, definitely. Um, why doesn't fat, Why isn't Fatty strength 3 or wounds 2? Or Bomber, he has an extra wound. So on account of being fat, why doesn't Fatty have extra wound or extra strength or extra defense, maybe? So you think Fatty's inconsistent for the other fat models who have gained a bonus of being so yes. fat? Yes. And if you look at a Bracken Guard, they get an extra pip of defense and an extra strength just from being big. Yeah, and the two-handed weapon, very good. And your time is up, Danny. Jeremy, what rule in the game would mo- you most like to see changed? Your time okay. starts now. Oh, excellent. I have... When we are brawling for priority, it's always a really tense roll, and you're you either want to win it or want to lose it. There's sometimes when you want to win it, and if you don't win it, you can say, "I'm going to spend a point of might, and I am going to call a heroic move, and I'm going to override priority, and that's fantastic." And then there's some things like Balan where you can re-roll it, but there's sometimes when you get priority and you go, "Oh no, I don't want to move first. I want someone else to move first before me." So what I want is a new heroic move. I don't know what it's going to call. Maybe heroic hold or heroic patience or heroic, let's be indecisive. Heroic indecisiveness. I like that one. Heroic indecisiveness where your hero says, stop. Just calm down, guys. Everyone within six inches of me, just wait. Just wait. Stop. Just wait. Just wait. Okay. The other enemy's gone. It's moved. And that way you've got more choice in priority. So I want heroic what was it? Heroic incompetence. No, heroic immobilization. Indecisiveness. Your time yeah. is up. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. That concludes this month's podcast. Thank you for bearing with us through this quite lengthy episode. It's been really enjoyable. It's great to get back and talk about it. Going forward, we'll probably get some more people on the podcast. And I just wanted to get the format ironed out. There'll be some more segments in there as we go through. But thank you for listening. Please provide us feedback on the normal sources. And remember... Victory points win games. Victory. Yes, victory points win games. The master has spoken. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on the Green Dragon Podcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.